introduce yourself real quick. All right. Well, I'm Mark Haupt, and I am the Chief Information Security Officer at Databank. But more than that, I'm a uh, father of three wonderful grown boys and a husband of a, a wife, Maria, for over 25 years. And so the CISO thing is sometimes what I do on the side, you know? <laughs> it's your passion. It is. It really is. Where, I, I where did it. all this nerd stuff start from? Well, you, you can't go back that far. Oh, we have some time. <laughs> yeah, we got some time. So nerd stuff started uh, in, in high school. Um, I worked in this. This was back in the 80s, actually in middle school. I, I started working in a library at, at the Department of Defense schools that I lived at over in the U.K., and so I started the nerd stuff there, and they needed people to work on the computers that nobody else knew how to do and yep. nobody else knew how to work on. And so I'm, I started working on them. And then in high school, still working in the library, uh, when we had moved to Maine, and they needed somebody to run network cable in the middle of the, the, middle of the summer uh, because they were putting in a brand new, brand new network. In the, no. in the typing lab, of all things. That's a shit ton of stuff to unpackage. So let's start no, with Oh, yeah. So listen, what were you doing in London? Because I know you're a military brat like yeah. I am. Was your father Navy? My dad was Navy, and okay. we were stationed in an Air Force base. Where at? RAF Mildenhall. What did, your, what did your dad do in the Navy? He was also a cryptologist. So we hadn't gotten to that part yet. No so kidding. after I graduated high school, I went into the Navy active duty as a cryptologist. So... And so, he, advised, I mean, he obviously encouraged you to do that. Yeah, in fact, I, I went, I, I have a passion, a love, if you will, from a hobby perspective of aviation. And I actually started out, went into the recruiter's office on my own, and started out uh, as a uh, an AZ, uh, a, an aviation. Um, I didn't know that, right? Yeah, I know. I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but they 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 hooked me up with it because it, this goes back to the library stuff. I was really good at at categorizing and and cataloging things and so it was essentially the storekeepers for the uh oh, for, okay. for the aviation side and we were stationed up at nas brunswick maine and i had some guys like hey you know if you like the library you might like this kind of thing because you know you're you're you're, you're around the planes but you're not you know, not being bugged uh, by by all the different things that go on with maintenance stuff. You just you you just run the store in in the back. So I said, okay, that's cool. My dad's like, no, you're not going to like that. That's not what you're going to like to do. But they sell it well. Those recruiters oh, are pretty yeah. good, right? This is oh, a great yeah. job. <laughs> well, you know, actually, this one wasn't the recruiter. This was a guy that kind of lived around us. He, oh, he okay. Was, he he sold. I I went into the recruiter and it's like, don't even try. I know what I'm here for, and because your dad was Navy, right? Was he right. active duty then? Yeah, sure was. So listen, let's package this up one more yeah. time. So you, you're military brat, as am I. So like, mm -hmm. I was born in Idaho, never remember ever living there, right? But like, yeah. where were you born? And I was like, born on Camp Pendleton. My dad. So yeah, so we're going. Okay, let's go all the way back to 1972. Back. Okay. Okay, so you're right there, the same. So, you're a few yeah. years older than me. That's it. Yeah. So I was born in. You know, Let's keep the PII off, right? <laughs> but let's just say I was born in 72. I'm 50. And um, so I was born on Camp Pendleton. Dad was a hospital corpsman at the time. So he had gotten into the Navy, did his first stint as a hospital corpsman, and then he got out for a while. And um, his his father's background and his background uh, was more in into the religious side of things, and he wanted to be a preacher. But in the late 70s, mid-late 70s, when he got out, after he got done with his schooling, um as you know, history will tell, or those of us that kind of lived through it, the economics were not great in the late seventies, and things were not working out well uh, mm -hmm. for our fa family financially. So he got back into the Navy in nineteen seventy nine or eighty, 
I think it was 1980. And so when he went back in, he went out, went back in as a CTA, a cryptologist a admin um, side of things. So we went to Pensacola, um, where he where were you guys living at when he went back in in Missoula, Montana. Oh, snaps. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely, which, which is, is a beautiful area. Yeah, which is where I get my love for Montana. I, oh, yeah. I, to this day, I still love Montana. I can still remember. That's where I got my first hint of my love for aviation because right over the side, right, right over the top of our houses, all these old World War II planes um, would fly into the airport because they have uh, the smoke jumper teams up there in Missoula. Those smoke jumper teams, if you're not familiar with them, they, they're the ones that go and they literally jump out of the airplanes in – teams of five or six into or right around the, the wildfires, they call them now, they call them forest fires back then, and they'll, with hand tools and everything, they'll dig the lines and try and hold off the fire. Right? Savages. So they're, so they're like SEAL teams for fire yeah. uh, fire suppression, right? Well, Missoula was was and still is kind of a, a, a what they call a tanker base now, um, but back then a smoke jumper base, and so these old World War II planes would fly in and just like all that. That you know that's kind of cool. And then we moved down to Pensacola, and you know we all know what's down there. Literally lived underneath the flight path for the Blue Angels and all the trainer planes on on NAS awesome. Pensacola. So I'm eight years old when we did that. Just fell in love with planes from there. So now uh, from Pensacola, knowing that your dad now is a, a cryptologist, right? Yep. And that's a, a lot of people that don't know what that is. That's uh, mm-hmm. it takes a lot of security clearances. I mean, it yeah. takes you a lot longer to get in the NSA military. stuff. Yeah, yeah, it takes you a lot longer to even get in the military because mm-hmm. the they have to, like for me, you know, they give you a single scope background investigation at right. first, and then you know over the course of time you're at the, I mean you're at the fleet before you get your actual final security right. clearance. So it's taking a lot of time. Yours has to be way more in depth and it has right. to begin. How long are you like delayed before you get in because of that? So I was I was only delayed about. Uh, see, two, two, two and a half months. That's um, but keep in mind that's that's before I went to boot camp. Then the entire period of time of boot camp, they're doing their background investigation, and then for that rate though, too, people yeah. need to understand like they send the men in black out to go knock oh, yeah. on their neighbors' doors. And oh, stuff. absolutely, that's guys with badges deal. literally walk up to your teachers that you had in high school or your friends, and they say, "Do you know this person?" Oh, they'll and ask they'll your ex. Who did he date? Yeah. Like for me, when I had to get my SS uh, uh, or my SCI, they, mm-hmm. they, um, they went and talked to somebody that told them people that I dated. Yep. And then they went and they talked to the people that I dated's parents. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Who wants yeah. that? <laughs> nah, no kidding. But, but they also ask some, they ask some uh, questions when they <clears throat> do this. At least they used to back in the 80s and 90s. I don't know if they still do this anymore, but they really do dig. Oh, yeah. um, they, they ask, so... Look, I know you're not supposed to tell me anything negative, but did Mark ever do anything? Did he lie to you? Did he did he does come off? Yeah, does, does he gamble? He, does did he ever you know did he ever sneak around about this? You know, and and they're just you know digging for these kinds of things because the kinds of stuff that we dealt with was back, especially back in the day. I'm sure it still is, but. You know, with the Soviets at that point, it, cloak and dagger. It was you know the KGB was actively after people who had security clearances, so they can get information off of us. So anything that could have been used as you know that that hidden it secret in your life, you. right? They could use it against you to blackmail you to get you to right. start sharing secrets. Exactly. People exactly. don't realize how intense that mm-hmm. is, probably. But like. We have a lot of people on this in these podcasts that are, you know, from aviation to whatever. But right. 
the secret squirrel stuff that you were getting into mm-hmm. is a really significant part of the data center industry, right? Absolutely. So, even even to this day, it is. I mean, that, that's what got me into this field. And even to this day, you know, data centers and secret squirrel stuff, the, the things that we do that we don't even have security clearances for, um, you know, beyond HR, uh, HR investigations or, or things like that, we, we still have to almost, you know, okay, so for example, um, if somebody wants to host, a data center wants to host uh, gaming Black, you know, the uh, the blackjack and all that, uh, you know, online gaming systems, right? The background investigation, as I'm learning and have learned, for actually being able to host those and be responsible for those systems is probably more intense than what we've been talking about with the SCI for the military. Really? Absolutely. Because um, all the laundering concerns. Well, yeah, there's that. Gambling. But, you know, you know, when... When we go for clearances or we go for a gaming license is technically what they call it, um, you know, legally, if something's expunged from your record, let's say you did something in... Near 16. Yeah, 16. Or let's say, we, you know, you're, you're a freshman in college and you, you did something fun and ended up with a... With, with, you know, just a small minor infraction and the judge says, okay, you're, you're a kid. I'm going to give you a stern warning. I'm going to let you off. You know, back in 1990, 1986, when I was that age, they did that, right? Yeah, not, maybe not so much now. So, you know, it's expunged. You're forgiven. Move on. And the lawyers will tell you, you know, hey, expungement means it's gone, right? They shred it and delete it and destroy yeah. it. Yeah. It depends on the state, but it's yeah. It's digitized now. Right. It's not. Well, guess what? Gaming commissions find it, and then they start asking questions, and and they start saying, "Why, you know, why didn't you tell us about this?" Well, it was expunged legally. I don't have to tell you about it. Well, you had to tell us about it, and all sorts of stuff like that. So when I was in the military, for example, you know, I had to do um, as part of one of my read-ins for because so there's SCI, but then you read into special projects. One of my read-ins, I had to have um, a polygraph. And I didn't pass the polygraph because I was nervous as all get out. Yeah, and had to go back and redo it. You know, redo it. Um, and you you got these guys and you know the men in black like you're talking about, and and they're making you all nervous and stuff with all these wires attached to you, and they're asking you, well, is the sky blue? Well, yes, it's blue. Well, is it really blue? <laughs> you know, and they're and they're trying to trip you up and trying to get their systems to show. Well, you know, the gaming the gaming commission is is doing things that are like that. You know, they're asking those in depth, strange questions, and they're wanting you to 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 literally spill your guts about everything, um, and no, no secrets. You know, no yeah. no secrets whatsoever. If you want to do a gaming commission license, it's been an it's been an interesting process to go through that. Wow. What well, I, I know, I took you to that path but but that's on me right no it's all good but going back to like okay so you were in pensacola then you moved to somewhere and then you were yeah i moved somewhere but that that the love for the library Mm -hmm. led to someone saying hey man you may be interested in something like this right so like i don't know any kids that were into the library scene when i was growing up no i'm a nerd what a geek a dork all the above so i'm learning this right so like first of all you you said there's three of you are you the oldest, youngest, middle? I'm the oldest. Okay. So I, I'm the oldest um, son. Then there's a, a I have a brother and a sister um, that's un, that's underneath me. So did yeah. they follow in the path of the father too? Or? No, they did not. Civilian I'm soldier. the I'm the only one that that went into the military right um, out of high school. I, well, I went to one. So that that's where the um, 
That's where the whole AZ thing comes into play. So originally I signed into the delayed entry program for AZ, but I ended up going to college for one semester. Where at? And at Abilene Christian University over in Abilene, Texas. And so then that was the fall of 1990. Now, if we remember back in history what happened in the fall of 1990. Berlin Wall? No, no, no. 90, hold on. 80, 90. Fall of 90? Operation. There's a storm, I guess. Uh, Previous one. Yes. Which one was it? It, it, was, a, it was the Iraq okay. situation. So Desert Storm was when it became, um, you know, became the actual combat situation. So fall of 90 was the buildup. And um, mom and dad, uh, dad was transferred to Okinawa, Japan. Mom and the younger two kids moved over there in December. How old were you? I was uh, 18 at the time. And where were they at when they were? They were in Brunswick, Maine. Okay. So. Um, you where, said, I'm not going to go. Well, no, actually, I did say it. I, I said I'm going to go to I, I'm going to go to Okinawa, and I'm going to go to you know if you've ever been to military overseas, they always have a University of Maryland or similar type of thing. So, I chose to go over there with them, thinking that Dad might get deployed and Mom would be left in this in a place foreign that country. she's yeah foreign yeah. country that she's not familiar with, and and whatnot, and that I could potentially help out as the adult son. Well, Dad never actually got deployed, and and that was. That was a good thing because it, it was over very quickly. But when I got over there, we realized he wasn't going to get deployed. And so I decided to go ahead and sign up myself as a CTO. So that's where what I was at. That? CTO is the communications operations um, okay. thing. So that's really where the data center piece comes into play here is that I was operating miniature communication centers, miniature uh, data centers um, in involved with the Naval Security Group activity, the NSGA, um, at, which is the naval version of uh, ARM, if you will, that works with the NSA. It doesn't exist anymore. They've uh, terminated that program. Um, but so CTOs were operators. We were the ones that were reading the crypto into the KG-84s and operating the satellite communications through multiplexers, demultiplexers, making sure that they're all up and running, um, operating uh old IBM style mainframe systems. And then I, where I, one of the places I was stationed at, I was on the leading edge of bringing in a new Unix Go system. So as you know, I'm active duty here in the first couple of years of my active duty period, I'm, I'm being exposed to everything that occurred, everything in the computing world and the telecommunications world that occurred uh, from essentially the 19, mid-1960s up through about 1990, 91, 92. And as that's being retired, I'm also ushering in all the new systems. Tough transition. Yeah, well, it's a tough transition, but it was also, you know, right the perfect time to be where I was at because I was able to take all that new stuff, build on that, and then come to where I am today. Did they change the rate? Um, well, it, it got changed in, in early 2000s to a CT – CTO went to CTN, which stood for network. And then the rate was de- either decommissioned or uh, merged into the IT. So the CTO rate actually came out of the RM rate in the in the uh, 1950s. Radio operators, radio men that needed mm-hmm. all the yep. The so ra- radio men that had the had the extra clearance is what we were um, lovingly called, if you will. Okay. And so that they came out, and then, then where's the school for that? Like, so when you came in, you went to boot camp at Great Lakes. No, I went to San Diego. So that's another story and a half. So I was in Okinawa. There's no recruiting station in Okinawa. So 
I did so like like I said, the, the, I started with the AZ up in Maine, and, and I went to I undid my delayed entry, went to school, and then so I went to a Navy career counselor in Okinawa, Naval Air Facility Okinawa, and said, "Look, I want to sign in." So he worked with the recruiting center down in Guam at NAS uh, Agana. And so got all the paperwork back in the old days, faxing it back and oh, forth. Yeah, I literally was able to, you know, not on a screen like this, of course, but literally able to watch Norman Schwarzkopf and his team sign the ceasefire agreement with the Iraqis in late February. I, the, the date escapes me, but probably February 28th or somewhere right around there uh, for Desert Storm. And then we marched out to the quarterdeck at NAF, uh, NAF Kadena. Um, Okinawa raised the right hand on the quarterdeck with the commanding officer of NAF uh, Kadena um, to sign into the delayed entry program. Then I immediately, or not immediately, then it was a two month period. I left on April 1st, went down to Agana, uh, Guam for three days um, with the recruiter, did all the final paperwork. Like your maps, all your medical stuff, yeah, probably. But, yeah, but being that. They, they really didn't have a MEPS, and I had all my military records from the military healthcare system sure. already. It was just like, yeah, here you go. So then, you know, military people always have wonderful little stories, but, you know, taking off uh, to go to Guam or to go to the boot camp, I left at 8 p.m. In, in Guam on one day, April 1st or April 3rd, sorry, of 91, and uh, flew to Hawaii through, through Honolulu, saw the sunrise the same day twice. Because of the Dateline issue, flew on to L.A. and then down to San Diego, and I actually entered boot camp two hours prior to the point in which I left Guam on the same day. Yep, I get it. You're going the opposite direction. So I went straight into boot camp after all that flying. And then basic at San Diego, huh? Yep. So I did basic at San Diego, which is no longer, um, you know, that RTC San Diego has not been around since BRAC of probably the mid-90s or so. Sure. Um, And a little fun fact, there's the— the uh, command building there at RTC San Diego was where they in 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 that in one of the uh, restrooms there is where they filmed the scene from Top Gun, where uh, the famous uh, bathroom McGill- scene. Yeah, they're, they're the famous. officers' club. Yep, yeah. yep, exactly. So that so was in San Diego. Where that was at. in San Diego at the RTC. So I left. So San Diego was boot camp, and then I went to NTTC Corey Station in Pensacola, which is three miles down the road from NAS Pensacola. So is that where you're going to school? Is that your so A that's school? Where, that's the A school and the C schools for most of the CTs. How long are you guys in school before you hit the fleet? Uh, so mine, my particular one was um, June with one month of scullery work. So really July, August, and then I then I ended up at my first command in mid September. So, so two and a half months of of schooling and three three and a half months total. Yeah. So in that time, it, you know, a few months before you got in and then a few months of school. Mm-hmm. So now you're five, six months in. And, and all sec- that time they're doing the security clearance stuff. Right. And How I- long until they came back and said, okay, you've gone to the schools, mm-hmm. you're in, you've done through your stuff, but now you are security-wise allowed yep. to be in this role. So there, there is a point at the midpoint, at least at that point there was, a midpoint of the schooling where you at least had to have a top-secret clearance, not the SCI side, but you had to be cleared for top-secret in order to proceed with the schooling. Otherwise, you went into um, the hold tank and did scullery work and all that kind of jazz. But I was able to move on through. Um, and then uh, I was 
I, I was very quickly granted a preliminary SCI. And I don't know for fact of this, but probably because of um, because of my dad and the fact that I grew up on a lot of military bases, it's easy to kind of figure out that this guy's probably, less, you know. Less compromised. Le- yeah, less risk, you know. Um, and plus they had, uh, you know, most of the time the FBI did it, but they had NIS agents that did things too. So they could just issue an NIS agent in order to go in, um, or it wasn't NIS at that time, but whatever, you know, the, the, um, the investigative service to go out and ask the teachers and all that kind of jazz. Um, but anyway, and then probably by, and I think for me, it was quicker, probably by October, maybe a month at my initial command, I had the full SCI and was being read in uh, to to programs. Um, I do know other people that were with me that were that came in the same time I did. They didn't have their SCIs until after January or February, and that was that was pretty routine. What was the um, like when you signed up and you committed? Mm-hmm. What was it? A minimum four year, five year? Four by four. Four by four. Yeah. So now nowadays, when my son signed up, they didn't do anything uh, less than a, a six by two. For most of those types of programs, in fact, almost any program is at least a five by three these days. So that's five years active, three years yep. inactive, but you're eight years committed, yep. or four active, four reserve, or right. six active, mm-hmm. six two reserve. But everyone has to do yep. eight. Yeah. So I did four active. Actually, ended up doing four and a half active, um, and the remainder of it on the inactive reserve list. Sure. Mm-hmm. So when you uh, when you did that, where, where were you stationed when you came out of school? What was your All first right, command? So. RTC San Diego, NTTC Corey Station. Then I went to Naval Security Station in at 3801 Nebraska Avenue in Washington, D.C. That is currently the headquarters of the Department of Homeland Security. So when they decommissioned the Naval Security Group activity, which was their that was that building was their headquarters from all the way back in the um, World War II period when what they call the on the roof gang. Um, initiated what was initiated um, as part of the crypto teams um, in World War II. That building, um, shortly thereafter, uh, became the headquarters of NSGA. And so, when that was decommissioned and it became a no longer a Navy base as a result of BRAC in the early 2000s, the Department of Homeland Security took it over. It's right across the street from American University on the the north area. Uh, northwest area of D.C. What was the primary role and responsibility they had on a daily in that type of position? In my position? Yeah. Well, so I, I would I was a watchstander for most of what I did was watchstander operating that, a, communication systems. But that's a land-based duty. Yep. Right? Absolutely. And you stand watches it like 24-hour cycles? We did uh, what we call 248-272s. So I did two 12-hour shifts. So 12 on, 12 off, 12 on, 12 off, 48 hours off. Then I – and and we those – 12 on 12 off were usually day, 6A to 6P. Then we had that 48 off, and then we would flip it, which was the painful part, and we would do um, two 12-hour shifts at night, 6P to 6A, and then we would have 72 hours off. So it was basically an eight-day schedule is what we'd run. And then you're just kind of on the ready in case, because people that don't know what cryptology is, why don't Mm -hmm. you explain that? Yeah, so what? So there's a multiple multiple pieces of cryptology. What I did was communications. So it's it, satellite communications, ship to shore, shore to ship. Um, in in modern world, it's networking. Okay, it's just simply put, it's 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 networking, and and however you can transmit it, networking. But everything that's transmitted has to go through these large, ugly, gray crypto boxes. 
And um, and so those crypto boxes is what's encrypting all of the traffic that's then transmitted over AT&T circuits or whatever type of circuit. And once it's encrypted, it's it's able to be transmitted over pretty much anything. So yeah, that that's what that's what I did. And I operated so without going into yeah, yeah. Uh, potentially too much detail, but essentially what you had is you had a, a, a computer terminal, you know, PC type of terminal. You type up or or receive the message, right? Then it would you hit the send key and it'd be transmitted like an email into a mainframe system. That mainframe system would then write it to the old fashioned reel to reel tapes. The first set I was in was reel-to-reel type of tapes, and then it would be transmitted out of that through the crypto gear up to uh, up the circuits, out the satellite, out the fiber. Out, well, th- then we didn't have fiber, but out so you know a T1 type of thing um, to wherever it's going. It'd be relayed throughout. Uh, you know, if we're if we're sending a message to a ship, it would go from us in DC to Norfolk, what we call Nick Tams, uh, you know, or if it's on the Westpac, Nick Tams Westpac or, or somebody, some type of communication center like that, which would then transmit it over our, um, RF or VHF if it were, or UHF if it were submarine type of messages or satellite if it, was, if it was a more modern ship. It just depends on, you know, whichever is the fastest, most easy way to get to that ship. Um, but we would transmit the message, and then we would receive, and that entire process would be reversed. And it was, you and know, you had a counterpart on the other side receiving yeah. it, and only you got like on our submarine. There were only a few people that had yeah. access to the comms. Yep, exactly. And so we had typically three people to a watch during the day watches. We might um, add a, a fourth person. Uh, we'd have a watch, a watch lead or supervisor, and two operators. And one operator would operate on the actual comm side, making sure all the modulation, demodulation, the circuits were up and that kind of thing. The crypto gear was working. And then on the other side, um, the individual would be the system operator for the mainframe system, for the Unix system. And so um, and so we would do that. And of course, you know, through that, that's really where I got my understanding of security. So, you know, through that, you know, government, military has wonderful OJT, on-job training, and all different types of of packets and stuff that you you have to learn, and I was diving into absolutely everything, and and under not not just you know some people would come in and say okay we need to degauss the tapes okay we'll run them through this big magnet and degauss the the reel to reel tapes so they're clean, but I would dive into it and ask the question why how does the degausser work what's it actually doing in there how secure is it really once the tape comes out is it really gone or is it only utilized for for reuse? So I, you know, to translate that to what I do today, um, you know, when we're talking about disk uh, destruction, I use the same methodology. If the disk is if the disk is going to be reused in a server that we have today, then all we need to do is run a wipe across it. You know, multiple ones and zeros, or or use a wipe tool, run across that, and then we can reuse it in a system. Because generally speaking, you have a, a disk that's um, that's considered to be clean at that time, but not one that you'd want to leave your facility. So if it's going to stay within the boundary, we can continue to use that. But then if that disk needs to actually leave the boundary, it's not working, for example, and, and you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, like HP or Dell or somebody, if, if it's part of an array, they're, they're going to want that disk back in order for warranty purposes. We're like, no, can't have that disk back. It has to go through a shredder. Well, that's the same thing we would do with the tapes. If the degausser would be the wiper, and then we would go reuse it. And then if if 
the tape was damaged in some way and couldn't be reused, it needed to go through a, a cross-cut shredder. A destruction thing. And yeah. so those kinds of basic things are what I learned by going through this crypto program um, and, and operating this crypto gear. The concepts have stayed with me from day one and, and have been able to apply over to the business side of things. Um, and have, you know, it, it, they're, they're the very foundation of, of what I do and, and where I, you know, how I operate. Before business needed security, I was learning it from there. Yeah. So you asked a, a question I want to go back to and it's, you know, what's this whole crypto thing? So I did operations. I just went into detail with that. There's also um, CTIs. They still have CTIs today. They're the linguists. They're the ones that go to Monterey. They don't go, they don't go to um, Quarry Station for school. They go to Monterey, California. Um, for school, and they they spend a year, two years, maybe even a two and a half years, depending on the language that they're learning, l- just immersing themselves into whatever foreign language that they're learning. Um, by native, they're they're taught by native tongue speakers um, and and readers and writers, and you know somebody who was getting A's and B's in school, in high school or even college with a language. Um, will find this, these programs difficult. Um, someone who, who it comes to naturally will find these th- programs difficult. And the, the standards are incredibly high for our CTIs, our, lang- our linguists, because these are the folks that are listening and they need to know culture and they need to know um, slang. The, the slang. They need to know accents. They need to know everything in order how to interpret what's being said because what they interpret literally goes to our decision makers in our country. Could be an admiral on the bridge of a ship when there's another ship next to them that is um, squawking at them and and could be the difference between a a confrontation and a non-confrontational situation by them not only listening to the language but also reading the tone and, and so on and so forth. Especially in today's day and age, you know, few years ago, maybe not so much, but now certainly it, it's it's an issue where you you know you might have two a Russian and American ships side by side in the Mediterranean, and you need to know as a as a decision maker on that bridge what's really going on, what's what are they the really intense. saying? Yeah. yeah, and so these uh, CTIs are are taught that kind of thing, and nothing less than what we would say is an A. You know, if you even if you're getting a B in school, they'll wash you out. You need to have an A. You need to have the the only the best. I mean, literally the best of the best um, are are kept in that program. And so CTIs, if they still have the CTNs, I need to go look at that. That would be what I did. The networking. So people who do packets, uh, IP, TCP, IP type of stuff, um, routers, switches. Th- those those folks. Um, I believe they've been switched over to IT folks and they've just certain IT people have just been given an extra clearance so gone back to the old way when I was in there was also CTAs that's what my dad did administrative work um, I love my dad but we had uh, we, we had I learned when I went in we had terms uh, for that and you know back in the old days and we called them skirts because there's a that's one of the rates that a lot of women were able to go into because you know back in that day women were yeah. not allowed to be They're in combat yeah and they weren't. They weren't allowed to be in combat, and so on and so forth. So that was one of the rates that um, that a lot of the uh, a lot of the women went into. Um, but uh, but yeah. So I, in fact, I have a lot of good friends that were male CTAs, and they're they're some of the toughest guys I know because they had to deal with all the all the uh, all, all the you know people the teasing social them. dynamics. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, they, they're they're the ones. You know, secretaries, and I, I don't want to degrade admins. that, but but it that that's what it is. Yeoman. 
Um, yeah. So, so CTAs have been uh, demised and they've been moved back into yeoman, uh, yeoman rate. And now what they do with them is they just say, hey, you know, a couple of yeomen that need to have an extra clearance in order to work on this particular uh, job, they give them the extra clearance. Then you had CTTs and CTRs. And these guys are the ELINT, SIGINT type of people, um, somewhat equivalent to, a, um, to an ET. Uh, and electronics tech, but these guys are the ones that are sitting there listening to the telemetry and collecting the telemetry and analyzing the telemetry out of missiles um, or other types of radar or radio equipment. Um, small story about that um, and that that I can share is that we, we were sitting, we were transiting um, on a an LHA, an amphibious assault ship from Okinawa um, to uh to uh, Hong Kong on a uh, we call it gee dunk trip because it was our admiral going you know, taking us down there shopping. for Christmas and yeah. go shopping and come back. Um, this was back in the day before Hong Kong was China too. Um, this is 90, 93, 94, uh, 94 time frame. But anyway, um, we were transiting and one of our, our div officers, divos, div officers said, hey, first one of you that picks up the Taiwanese um, – coming out to take a look at us because even the friendlies come out and just you know take a couple of pictures and take a look at us first one of you picks up the one of those guys steak dinner in hong kong so these ctts ctrs cti's are sitting next to each other all kind of listening trying to pick up what's going on and i won't tell you which one of them but one of them picked them up at a very early spot um Let's just say the airplane was still sitting on the ground and perhaps maybe it just started powering up and somebody might have come across a radio or some other piece of gear and said where they were going and what they were doing. And one of our CTTs, CTRs, CTIs picked that up, turned around the divo and said, <clears throat> steak dinner tonight. They're coming. So steak, steak dinner in Hong Kong. They'll be here at X time. He relayed that to the ship's captain. Sure enough. We're all standing outside on the on the flag bridge, watching and waving while they fly over, almost to the minute in which uh, in which our CTs pick that up. So that's an example of what they would do. Then you have CTMs, which are maintenance guys. You know, with all that type of electronic and all that type of equipment, somebody's got to do the maintenance, and somebody's got to be the one that has a clearance in order to do the maintenance because sure. they're actually breaking open a KG-84, for example, and know the insides and the innards of how these work. Russians would have loved to have that kind of person um, on the on their side, you know, showing back, how the back in back engineering, reverse engineering yeah. back in. Yeah, exactly. So that's what they did. And, and that was the that was the close knit group. Um, and then we had uh, our officers were 1610s. We had special designated officers were crypto uh, crypto officers. And now when you were in, mm -hmm. your dad was still in. Mm -hmm. What rank was he at that time, by the way? He was an E6. Okay. So did any of the guys like you went to school with know your dad? Oh, yeah. I was um, – I got a couple stories there. So um, I actually knew a couple of the chiefs that were in charge of me down at uh, Quarry Station um, in in my A school. And uh, I got in trouble too because, um, you know, uh, this is a, somewhat of a, a tangent story. But a lot of the gunner's mates and the, um, and the, the more uh, – the the boiler techs and people like that they went to um, they went to uh, San Diego for boot camp because then they went just straight into San Diego for the fleet right yeah. a lot of their A schools were out there on the same base and so you know those guys they didn't care what their uniforms looked like except for their blues or their whites you know their their dungarees they were work uniforms they 
didn't need to be ironed, no grease, you know, they, they grease on them, you know, all that kind of jazz, right? So they didn't care what their dungarees looked like. So they never taught us how to iron the the clothes or anything. And I'm so and, and you would think that I would have known this because dad was in, but here's the thing. As CTs, especially and and especially at that period of time, um, people in the military were not allowed to wear their uniforms off base. They had to change their clothes on base before driving off base unless they were going straight home. So I really never – I did not see my dad in uniform very often. Um, uh-huh. And so um, so I didn't I, – I didn't think that the dungarees needed to be ironed. Well, I get the Pensacola, their Corey Station, and – Chief, Chief yeah. Vincent just laid into me on day one because I had a wrinkled dungaree uniform. It's like, you see everybody else around here, blah, blah, blah. Well, what do you, why do you think you can dress like that? And well, I went, she thought I, she knew me. I knew her son. We, her son and I went to middle school together. We were part of the command. It was a very small, a small command over in UK. We were part of the command Christmas parties together, you know, back when I was in 10, 11, 12 years old. And, um, so she's just jumping all down down my throat, and um, that's what chiefs do. That's what chiefs are supposed to do. Exactly. And I learned from her. You know, you can tell. I can remember this story even to today. But I, I, I told her. I said, "Not an excuse, ma'am, but San Diego. We never had to iron our uniforms. You're lying through your teeth." Da, da, da. She she hauled me in to her office. She picked up the phone and called out to RTC San Diego. And said. This recruit here is telling me you guys never teach anybody how to iron iron your uniforms out out there in San Diego. No, we don't. Well, see, the thing is, CTs never went to San Diego. I was a rare bird because they all, all went to Orlando okay, or right. maybe Great Lakes, and they taught them how to do that down there They did because not only did Orlando have CTs, but they also had other prof- highly professional rates like nukes. And so they taught them how to do these things. Well, she come back to me and goes, Better learn how to iron, you know, all that kind of stuff. But then she closed the door and she says, what is good? Okay, I know you. What is going on? Yeah. And I'm like, well, ma'am, <laughs> here's the deal. I told you the truth. And she's like, yeah, absolutely. You told me the truth. And she goes, that's very important for a CT to tell the truth and not try to play around. And, you sure. know, it kind of goes back to that clearance conversation we had a few moments ago. You got to tell the truth all the way, to, regardless how bad it may be, you know? Yeah, I think some people don't have a full appreciation for the magnitude mm-hmm. or the intensity that goes into their background checks for especially CTs, yeah. right? But yeah. it does but, make sense because you were saying before that you were there during the transformation, mm-hmm. right, where they were going from the older platforms into the newer ones. So you right. were kind of tasked to know both sides of the ball throughout that transition. Right, <laughs> that for led. systems, yeah. So, like, listen, when you came out, when you came out, the mil- did you get out before your dad got out? No, um, dad retired full 20. Uh, in, in December, I believe it was December 31, 1994. I got out in, let's just say May 31 of 95. And was your, so did you get out because your dad had already joined the civilian fleet and found a job that has a high demand of CTs and there's a lot of opportunities out there? Um, no, I decided to get out. Um, and I still have some regrets to this to this day, but I decided to get out because I, one, wanted to see what was out there because a lot of people I worked with were in Washington 
um, would get out and immediately go straight into civilian, high-paying civilian jobs. Sure. So at age 22, I was like, oh, you know, maybe I could do that. I didn't go back to – didn't go to Washington. Um, I, I ended up going to Indianapolis where mom and dad were at and um, getting a job in the in the civilian field and in that, that point in the healthcare industry. But – I IT, just, uh, IT, yeah, healthcare. oh yeah, oh yeah, IT data center, um, healthcare, uh, Catholic healthcare system, um, and and there's a story with that too. But to to your point was, I, I wanted that, but I also, you know, to, yeah, okay, this is one of the transparency things. I also saw that I have I have uh, you know a brother and a sister, as I mentioned earlier, they didn't do well um, from moving around all over the place in the military. They had various. Um, they just did, they just didn't transition acclimation transition stuff. Accl- yeah exactly transition acclimation stuff i did wonderful i love the change i even to this day could got to got to move got to go yep. and so i looked at that and said okay if only a third of us um have done well and enjoyed this then if i get married and have kids am i going to have the same troubles, if you will, with two, two thirds of my family and that I don't want to have to deal with. So, um, so I chose to get out predominantly, um, to kind of settle down and have a family a little bit. Cause I'd done this, you know, growing up, uh, e- even when dad wasn't in the military in the seventies, we moved a number of times. So I felt like it was a 20, my entire life at that point, 22 years to move. So, you know, it's kind of time to settle down a little bit. Um, so that's predominantly why I got out, settle down and also, um, to, to have a family and, and see what, see what kind of career I could make. What was that, that transition? Like when you're a CT, yeah. it's really important, right? Where you knew you wanted out, but how did you know what was available to you? Other yeah. than going, like, what if your parents were in Indianapolis, you know, yeah. so like, how would you have, is there a, is there a group that mm. exists of your type of people that are always looking out for each other, left seat, right seat, size. You know? Yeah, they are around Washington, D.C. If I chose to go back to D.C. or um, a couple of places on the, the West Coast, I could have probably gotten right into the military-industrial complex. Uh, and Or a three-letter agency. Well, yeah, and, that, and that's part of what I'm, you know, as a contractor yeah. into, the, into one of three-letter agencies, I could have probably walked in day one if I wanted to do that. But I didn't have... I didn't have a comfortable support system for me to just land in somebody's, you know, somebody's living room uh, to do that. So I went to Indy. So I did take a little bit different path. But prior to getting out, the government at that point, military in particular, uh, at that point, there was a lot of people transitioning out because it was the end of the Cold War and they were actually asking people um, to to retire. They were asking people to get out at that point in um, – Maybe in 95, you 95, said? 95, What month? In, in May, June of 95. And so um, – but anyway, they, they had they had a lot of transition programs. You know, the, you know in, in Top Gun, Goose comes up and he says, well, you know, I'm thinking about getting out and I can go be, be a, a truck, truck driver, driver right? right? Well, you know, the funny thing is that, that that was a joke in the movie, but it was reality. When I went to the job transition programs that the military offered – I can still remember the names, Estes and Swift and so on and so forth. There's just one table after another. Hey, come be a truck driver. And that was that was the reality is, hey, you can come do that. Now, I didn't want to do that because I had other skills. Um, ended up going back to Indianapolis. It took a couple of months. Um, I, I took a job selling uh, computers and TVs at Sears for about three or four months. There's a company that doesn't exist anymore, I right? Know. Um, and 
uh, and knew that wasn't my my path. It was something to employ me. And then I ended up getting a job with the Catholic healthcare system in Indianapolis at one of their data center, data IT operations called Alverno Administrative Services. Now, the interesting little piece there is I got on as the, as the help desk, um, and I quickly moved from help desk level one to two because they, they saw, hey, you know, this guy, yeah. um, this guy was, you know, has got more skills than just sitting on a help desk. But this is where, this is where I thought I'd left all my security stuff behind thought, you know, the only way I'm doing security is to get back into the three letters or or the industrial complex somehow, right? Well, this little law called HIPAA came out right as I was getting out of the military and transitioning. And these folks in this healthcare entity were sitting up in there, literally sitting up in their boardroom. The law came out and some of the law had to deal with encryption and things like that. And they're like, we haven't done encryption. We haven't needed to do encryption. That's not something and, – and other security-related stuff. Somebody in that room, as I understand it because I wasn't there, said, you know, there's this kid down on the help desk that keeps talking about security. cryptologists, yeah. you know, doing cryptology and stuff and working for the NSA. And, you know, maybe we should just bring him up here and see what he has to say about this whole HIPAA thing and what's going on in there. Boom, rocket. All of a sudden, the lowest guy in the company – on help desk level one, help desk level two, I can't remember what it was at that time, all of a sudden became the consultant and advisor on how to deal with security because of with, HIPAA. Because of HIPAA. And then, you know, from there, uh, the career has, has gone on. And today I'm a CISO as a result. So I'm going to take you back to where you just left off with that, but explain yeah. to people what a CISO is. Oh. What's chief the- of chief bottle washer? No, I'm serious. So... Officially title chief chief information security officer, and I, I will say that CISOs are starting to transition over to chief security officers. But we can get into that at a later point if you want. But chief information security officer, it, it, to boil it down, is responsible for all the cybersecurity within the organization. Now, the reason that we're transitioning a lot of us over to CSOs rather than CISOs, and it is because there's so much more involved in security now. Uh, a CISO should be if they're worth half their weight in 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 the organization um, they should be involved in pretty much every aspect of the of the organization from HR to finance um, to operations so on and so forth all throughout the company the CISO should be involved in everything that's going on uh, not because they're nosy and they want to be but because they really need to be uh, you know, we have to maintain to, the integrity of the information, you mean? Well, or? there's the maintain the integrity of information, but with all the new privacy regulations that have come out, we have to you know work closely with HR on doing investigations yeah. um, to do forensics investigations, which I've, I've done those before and put people in jail. That's a fun thing. But also dealing with making sure, you know, we're working closely with the legal team to practically implement the requirements of the regulations throughout the organization. So, you know, every state has different laws. You know, Illinois, for example, has a biometric law where when we record the fingerprints or whatever other biometrics we use in order to get into the data center, not only do we have to protect that, but we have to maintain and manage and operate those systems that 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 op that that present that or record that data. And so that all you mean falls you can't under- sell my biometric data to I could. I'm joking. Well, but, are you really? No. But, but so listen, on the proactive side, from yeah. the things that you're talking about, all that makes sense. On the reactive side, mm-hmm. 
are you also like battling daily, you know, some yes. sort of IT attack that so goes to your clients? Side. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's the operational side of things. We're dealing with the nation state attackers. We're dealing, you know, again, going back to military stuff I did. Um, intelligence collection, intelligence analysts uh, analyzing the information. You know, when we've had um, when we've had these civil unrest, these riots yeah. in cities across America, different points uh, since 2014, 2015, where our data centers might involve in that, we'd have to collect intelligence information from Twitter and from all different sources that are out there, including having relationships with the law enforcement entities to be able to bring that into the company to what we would call risk analysis, but I really call it intelligence analyzing. We take the data and say, hey, you know, how likely is this going to be to impact our organization and what actions do we need to take in order to protect our data center and our people that and our customers, not just our employees, but our customers as well as they're coming in and out of data centers. Um, perfect example is we have a data center in Baltimore, in the, down in the heart of the city in Baltimore in 2015 when the Rodney King – no, Rodney King. That was, that was yeah, L.A. Ah, the, um, oh, the guy's Floyd? name. Yes. George, uh, no, George Floyd was Minneapolis. Oh, okay. Oh, why am I forgetting but, the guy? But anyway, I, know, I remember the big yeah, Baltimore riots. Big Baltimore riots. The gentleman there was was um, was – uh, killed as in in police custody, r- riots resulted. We had Molotov cocktails thrown at at some of our windows and such that were around the facility in which our data center was hosted. So we had to we had to analyze that and protect that information. We you know I was literally able to through Twitter and other sources track the mobs as they were coming down one street to another because people were reporting, hey, I'm here or I'm seeing this. I was using CNN videotape or CNN live feeds to coordinate with what's on Twitter. And I was get on the phone with the guys in the data center and say, okay, guys, you need to get out now because they're heading they're, – they're six blocks away from you and they're heading in your direction. So this is like the physical security team or is this the employees that you wanted to leave the building? Well, th- this would be our employees, our data yeah. center ops team. We, of yeah. course, the physical security teams um, – Stay. Yeah, the guard forces have to stay. Um, and then working with law enforcement to help let them know what's – what assets are inside these buildings and who potentially some of our customers are because, you know, with the, with the Baltimore situation, I had to let our law enforcement team know that there were federal – there it was a federally authorized data center, um, a FedRAMP authorized data center. And so we let them know that and I'm not going to say it was because of that, but – not, it was also a good location, but as that whole situation developed, the Maryland National Guard moved in and used that facility and that space and another space across the street as their staging point. All of a sudden, we became the most protective facility in that in the middle of the city of Baltimore, um, and and so we were able to you know leverage that you know because we had conversations with people uh, and just kind of let them know, hey, we're here. This is who you contact if something happens. So, so, so on, so on forth down, down the line. So you start, you know, your career in this industry. I, I started my career that got me to where I'm at mm-hmm. from the military too. And then, and then you went into this thing where you came out of the military, you're mm-hmm. an IT, you have this opportunity because of your security understanding right? To, to really skyrocket. And then I just skipped like probably 10, 15 years in front of that to get you to the CSO. So in yeah. that period in between, what were some of those other things that you were learning as things were evolving? Because maybe back in those days, mm-hmm. did they even have CISOs back then? CSOs, they did, but they were all focused on they were physical. all focused on physical security, and they were uh, retired cops that were you know guarding large buildings. And there were, the CISOs at that point were typically in the finance finance world because they did have some regulations. 
Um, and I wasn't in, in finance at that time, but I did move into finance. Um, so yeah, you're right. You skipped about 15 or 20 years there. Yeah. So from that healthcare entity, I went into finance in on the insurance side of things. Still in Indianapolis? In Indianapolis. It's all in Indy. So you worked for an insurance company. I worked for, to have yep. IT integrity and yep. security. And, okay. and I took a step up from the help desk into <clears throat> um, you know just typical workstation and systems administration, but I was still dabbling in the security side of things, and people would still call upon me to, you know, we had Y2K coming up and things like that, still call upon me to um, to do to have input on security pieces, but it still wasn't a big thing in the, in the industry at that time. From there, I moved on to be a technical operations manager at an internet service provider, you know, late nineties dot com boom. I rode that wave. Um, I also rode it down. (laughs) And so as the wave was crashing, I got on with a company that many people will love to hate. It's called Sally May. Sally May was the was and in in a new name Naviant is the biggest uh, provider of student loans to people throughout the United States and so I got on with them in literally one week before nine eleven occurred and that's a whole another story too but got on it as a security administrator now when I first got on there the security administrator's role was pretty much. Um, to advise the application support teams on best coding practices and to put in user IDs, passwords, reset passwords, things like that into the uh, into the um, Novell system. We weren't using weren't even using Active Directory that we're using Novell and groupwise for email and things like that. So that role uh, dramatically expanded as a result of 9/11 and some virus attacks that occurred. Um, with if you remember that 21, 22 years ago time frame, um, there was a virus that occurred a week after 9-11 called NIMDA, admin backwards. Um, NIMDA took down Sally Mae for – and they literally had to close their doors for two and a half uh, days um, in order to clean up the uh, mess across the country in, in Pennsylvania, Texas, uh, Indianapolis, and, and other areas, Ruston, Virginia, to stop that virus – and then also clean up from it. And I was one of the lead people because I had some inf- in, some incident response background. I was one of the lead people on that. And then coming out of that, um, really got some more rocket power behind me because I then we, we then determined that, that NIMDA came in through email. We had no no real email scrubbing system, so I led the effort um, to uh, to get a email scrubbing system put into and in into the. Uh, the groupwise uh, system there. And we did that. We ended up doing a very early uh, cloud program out of the UK that was scrubbing the email before it even came into our system. Really? Uh, yeah. It, even before cloud was cloud. It, and all it was of our looking to make sure that people weren't getting those viruses. It, they could exactly. just open an attachment. I mean, is that what happened? Yeah, someone just yeah. sent someone Ex- randomly, they opened and they unloaded yep, something. Exactly. So from there, um, I stay with Sally May until October of 2006. And during that period of time, um, I led. I, I hate to say I because it really was a we, but my responsibilities, uh, we had a very small team and my responsibilities were, it seemed to be to install, you know, I, I was the one who was called on, on a lot to install new systems. So we installed an IPS system. We started a new forensics um, unit uh, and, and team. And we brought in a, um, a very, very well seasoned CISO from the financial industry out of Chicago 
brought him into the system and he really uh, sent our entire team skyrocketing. And I was able to, you know, for lack of a better term, ride, ride his coattails a little bit um, and learn a tremendous amount of stuff, both good and bad, what I did want to do and what I didn't want to do if I ever got to that level of CISO. I was wondering how you were developing and learning in those times because yeah. it seems like the whole the whole need was emerging mm-hmm. and developing in real time. So yeah. you kind of are trying to mm-hmm. self-teach. I mean, there wasn't a yeah. governing authority that said, hey, these are some of the things that you need to do to patch together the best solution. No, I just, all- I'm, I'm self-taught. I have no degree at this point. I have no um, everything along the way. In fact, I barely had any certifications. Um, I just was self-taught this entire period of time with the exception of the A school um, out, out, of the, out of the Navy. And I also had a C school, but that was more for something that would never be used um, in – outside because it was a shipboard communication platform called Tack and Tell. But um, so self-taught along this, you know, self-taught, high energy uh, motivation. I'm digging in. I'm going to get the work done. You know, it's the stuff we learned in boot camp in the military is like you improvise, adapt and overcome and you make it happen. Sure. You don't roll over and go, yeah, today's not my day. I'm going to I'm just going to coast through this one. No, you, you power through it. You figure it out. You know, we need a new IPS system. Great. We've got somebody who um, is probably, you know, doing credit card fraud. Great. That's a – okay, guess what? Forensics for the next 40 hours, guys, we're, di- we're diving in. That's how my mindset was. Um, and as a result of that, I learned how to do a contract negotiations to this day. Um, you know, people tease me as a, as a lawyer, non-lawyer. Um, I, I do a lot of contract reading even to this day and interpreting – and working very closely with our legal team at Databank as a result of what I learned there at Sally May, learned the forensics piece, learned the IPS, re-energized my network um, background. Um, lots of different different things uh, that we did at Sally May. And well, did you have mentors around you? Was oh yeah, you, I mean like oh, yeah. the yeah. people that you worked for, but external people that um, helped yeah. you develop that you could go to. <clears> yeah. Like, hey, I got a question. What are you doing? Absolutely, but most of them were not security mentors. So that that's one thing is I, I kept my I kept my security mentoring in the office, but I also was very aggressive about doing personal uh, leadership mentoring at the same time. So some people in in the church and some people that were around me, we would get together. We would read leadership books. We would um, learn from people that were 20 years older than us of the mistakes that they made and 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 work through those kinds of uh, scenarios. And I remember one program uh, that I went through was a year-long program, and it was like – almost like a college, a rapid fire college thing. It was one book every or every couple of weeks that we were reading, discussing, you know, digesting, pushing out, um, you know, all, all those different leadership techniques and, and uh, thought process. So, yeah, it's kind of a parallel track, if you will, of sure. leadership and, and um, IT work. Because that whole, I mean, like, it's pretty dynamic still, right? It's mm-hmm. a very kinetic energy, that, I mean, industry that we're in. I'm sure that right. since you've been at Databank, You've probably had to reinvent yourself a few times, I'm sure, right? Three distinct times um, I've had to reinvent myself at Databank. And, you know, if you want to dive into that. Yeah, uh, for sure. I do. So, one, okay. So, but listen, look, you, I don't want to cut you off because, yeah. like, the reason why we share these stories is because, believe it or not, there's going to be CTs at, you know, right. Naval Station San Diego and whoever, you right. know, Sasebo, Okinawa, mm-hmm. the podcast could get anywhere. And there's going to be people that are like, man, this is how this guy did it. Right. And I could maybe do that too. Right. Okay. So, like. Yeah. You went from that internet service provider that you were at mm-hmm. where you were really getting into the bones of security and learning more about IT and security right. in parallel. And then you, how did you get from there? What was next? So, so I, I kind of jumped from 
I, I kind of overlooked a couple of things because there was – it was it. the dot-com world. So dot-com world was – generally was failing at that time. And so we at that ISP I was at, the internet service provider I was at, we sold that instead of failed it, okay? But moving out of that, trying to get a job was somewhat difficult. So I was a consultant for about – because it was difficult because the economy was down, turning down a little bit and IT people – there was a flood of IT people on the, on the market. Um, so I got a job again because – well, I got a job as a consultant with, a, with a, another small organization. This guy was a kind of an innovative scenario. He was a, he was a home builder who thought that – and he wasn't wrong, um, but he thought that he could, if he put a little data center in the middle of, let's say, these 500 or 250 homes and then connected um, his home subdivisions <clears throat> that he owned or, or was developing all around Indianapolis by creating a fiber ring around Indianapolis back to this little data center, that he could serve uh, cable TV, telephone, and internet to – Thousands of people. Basically, he wanted to compete against Comcast and compete against all the the different um, cable providers who are out there because he was creating these subdivisions and and making the 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 at that time coax in the in the ground was exclusive to his his environment. It would come back to us. So I was I was working with them as a as a op, IT operations um, individual. Uh, I was actually more of an architect there. I was actually designing the systems and helping deploy the systems and because from was, a security it, overtone or no, just based this, on straight this, IT. It's just IT at this point. This is just IT. Um, no no security involved in this. So I did that for I did that for uh, let's just say eight, nine months. And in that there was also I did also work as a W two for two months with a DSL provider who ended up going belly up. They were out of Chicago. They were trying to break into the indie market. I was their op uh, that would go and go into the CLEX, another learning point. Never been in a CLEC before in my life. And and if you're not familiar with the CLEC, uh, what this is is basically the old telephone, um, the old telephone buildings that are around. You you know, the used to be the wired, the plain old telephone systems. They'd have wires, they'd punch them down, sure. and they don't do that so much anymore. But it's basically a data center with for for plain old telephone systems. Old school, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I, that that two month role was to go in punch those wires down for the new customer and then go out to the customer's spot, uh, their, their place, and install it because it would transmit over the, uh, over the phone line, um, the, the DSL. Um, they lost all their money in the dot-com crash, and so two months and I was out. And then, and then this consulting gig. Um, and then I, that's at that point, so that was about a, a year of my life of being a consultant and still getting paid quite well for it. No security work involved, and I just strictly network IT work. Then I, that's when I got on at Sally May after that year. So that that was. Um, and that's when you really started learning a lot about security. Well, that's when it, it, uh, security took off uh, from from there. Yeah, that's when I. That's when. See, during that time I was at, at Sally May. Not only did we have incidents that occurred that made Sally May take security more seriously, but we had this little thing called Sarbanes Oxley that occurred. So down here in the Austin area and the Houston area. Um, a lot of people are very familiar, and Enron is a dirty word. Um, in fact, it might be a, a word you might get shot over <laughs> in some cases over down here. But um, you know that was Enron was the catalyst for Sarbanes Oxley and all the all the um, 
if you're not familiar with what happened there, is they 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 basically uh, cooked the books, and as a result, their stock prices were way overinflated. And then when they got caught, not only did they go down, but their their auditors, Arthur Anderson, also went down because they helped them cook the books. And that's a very oversimplified version of what happened. But as a result of that, Congress got involved and regulated the environment and came up with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which now says any company, in, in a nutshell, any company that's publicly traded on the stock exchange that's governed by the SEC has to meet this certain criteria and be audited by one of the you know, one of the firms and so on and so forth. So as a finance, it, it's not just financial, but it's those it's people to protect the investors. Yeah. Exactly. And so we still have to deal with that mess today. Um, it's very, very stringent. But um, so that came about at that time. And of course, so we, you know, security industry overall took a major step up. Uh, you know, companies that were publicly traded could no longer just ignore security. Now they had to meet a security criteria. So another thing that happened during that period of time is the federal government got involved in something that, that, that was created. It's called FISMA. The Federal Information Security Management Act came out in memory serves 2003. That FISMA ordered the federal government and NIST, the National Institutes of Science and Technologies, uh, Technology, to develop a set of security controls that the government had to follow um, in order to maintain security in their data centers and elsewhere um, that, that applied. And so they came out with NIST 800-53, revision one at that point. It's at, I don't remember how many controls it was at that point, but today a moderate, which is the they have low, moderate, and high, and the moderate, which is the average of where, where people go, is 325 security controls in 18 families that you have, to, you have to secure your environment. So you see there's a lot of regulation happening around the security industry at that time. And so that's elevating security overall, and, and now we've got security professionals that are being made and minted and, and out there, and I was on the, on the leading edge of that. So I was there at a good time. Um, but here's the thing, you know, going back to your point about either somebody sitting on a ship, somebody listening to this podcast saying, you know, how can I, how can I do this? What, what are the key, what's the key factor? So your military training, the improvise, adapt, overcome, always push forward is absolutely key. I never turned down an opportunity. And that's one thing I haven't boldly said here, but I'm going to tell you, I never turned down an opportunity. Had I shied away way back at that healthcare entity back in 1996-97 time frame when they were asking me to come up to the boardroom and talk to all the executives about this thing called encryption had I said oh you know I no I'm not going to talk about that or worse you know what I could have done is I could have lied and said well I can't talk about that because I'm bound by all these secret things and I've 75 years from the point in which I get out before I could talk about it because that's what the document said yeah. that I signed I could have I could have used that as my crutch but instead of using that as my crutch I used it as my advantage so always use the opportunities that are in front of you um, you know I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell you to go lie about it but you know a lot of people will say hey um, if somebody gives you an opportunity, Tell them, yeah, you could do that and then figure, and then out figure it out how. Okay. Yeah. So I was listening to a podcast just yesterday, Mike Rowe podcast, where one of the one of his cameramen for Dirty Jobs was also doing some work up in Alaska for another uh, another one of those programs, the deadliest catch or something like that, and said, Hey, do you know how to use, you know how to operate drones? Instead of saying, Nope, never operated one before, he said, I'll figure it I'll out. I'll figure it out. And he got in there, he figured it out. He crashed it once. So, hey, don't be afraid to fail. There's another thing. 
Because if you fail forward, so this is what I learned from my leadership program, in particular from John Maxwell, was fail forward. There's a whole book on that, failing forward. Don't look at a failing as a negative, looking at it as an opportunity to learn and then try it again and do better. And those are some of the things that we that that I carried over from the military and from the leadership training programs that I've had. That if you shy away from opportunities, if you're if if you pull Fear back, failure. then you are you are going to not succeed. I'm not going to say you're going to fail. You're just not going to succeed. You will eventually falter. Those that right. do, I mean, evolution and change is inevitable, mm-hmm. and those that don't embrace Absolute. it are going to be absolutely. So I'm not a. Af- so it's funny because I am not a risk taker, but I'm not afraid to fail. Um, in the failing forward mindset, um, and and part of you know part of my job as a CISO is is to advise people constantly on what risks are in front of them, and so at, as a result of that, I'm not a risk taker, but I'm I, again that's a whole different story. You're but I'm bold. Willing, you, yeah, yeah, you gotta you gotta be you gotta be out there, and and sometimes you have to be willing to be wrong, and sometimes you have to be willing to take a position that's not popular. And, and fight for it. But you also – here's another thing. There's something that I've seen out of a lot of military people that, that are coming out because um, – well, I've seen this out of a lot of military people. They don't know when it's okay to step back. Okay, so I've seen a lot of CISOs, a lot of security people coming out of the military going, i got to fight for this. We've got to have this in. And if the company doesn't do this particular security thing, they're going to blow up. What we have to understand is that there is a chain of command and if the CISO takes something to the CEO or to the COO and this, that, that person says, I assume the risk, they've been notified, and you've done a good job of communicating what that risk is, and you know you have in your heart, you know you have on paper, you've then let it go. Yeah. You've done your job. Let it go. Don't, don't ruin your career. Don't ruin your, your, your reputation and everything else by fighting over something that doesn't need to be fought over. You know? It's not sometimes that. I, I mean, I appreciate, I honestly, I think we learned this in the military is the passion that people present things to yeah. me uh, also helps communicate their conviction. Mm-hmm. In it. So sometimes I want to see how much grit they have for it. Oh yeah. So there's always a pushback and, you know, just kind of see what's going on. But the reality is, is, I think what some people don't realize is if that's their world and that's the only function they have to focus on, then they have to mm-hmm. champion for those things. But if someone above you hasn't rotated or acted on that a quick, you know, maybe it's because they have visibility into other factors and that's right. the, a problem that needs to be fixed, but it's not as important as the right. what, when that's tied to maybe a client SLA right. or yeah. cash flow or whatever. And that's one of the things I love about Databank is they want me to push back. They want me, but because they know and they trust, see, I've been at Databank eight years. I mean, how many CISOs do you know have been in their role eight years? That's, a, you know, something else we can also get into at a later point. But um, the, they want me to push that. Every time I've had a transition from a leader who's above me, he says, look, I want you to tell me the truth. I want you to push back. I want you to be that bulldog in the meetings that doesn't back down because all the thing, everything I've heard about you is that you know when you know when to pull back. You know when it's right to pull back. Yeah, there's a diminishing okay. return to every fight. Yeah. Yep. yeah, absolutely. Or you know, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll I'll pull back and then I'll come at it at a different angle, different person, different day. You know, for example. If or sometimes I, you're wrong. You're uh, allowed to be wrong. Military teaches that too. Fail forward is a military no, thing. I'm never wrong. What are you talking about? So uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's possible for anyone to be as wrong as me sometimes, but mm-hmm. I was. I was with one of my mentors actually this week up in Dallas, and I was mm-hmm. telling him, I'm like, man, I just keep failing. He goes, you're not failing. You're growing. Mm-hmm. Growing's painful. Yeah. But that's how you, you know, evolving it better. And I was like, it's true, but it's hard to – I think that in the military, I'd never equated failure to being 
bad. It was just opportunity to grow and be better. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. Well, I do think that I do think that some people um, are tend to believe that failure is, is is a horrible thing, and 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 that you know gets you written up and da 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 da. You know. I know plenty of people that were that in the military were stars, as a matter of fact, or or went on to great, uh, great careers. Been Blue Angels, um, you know, on the on the uh, Blue Angels team, who were who who were almost court-martialed or did something early on in their career, where that became a, that what they did became an asset. Um, so uh, John Foley, for example, he was a former Blue Angel. He he's a speaker on the circuit, and one of the stories that he tells is as an early JO, jun- junior officer, he was flying the A seven Corsair twos, and he fired a weapon. He wasn't supposed to fire the weapon, um, and he did something. He didn't follow the checklist. Didn't do something right, which uh, which resulted in the release of the weapon, and. You know, of course, he tells the story better, but bottom line is he used that as a learning experience and then used that in his interview with the Blue Angels sure. to say, look, I've already been through that problem. I've been through a scenario where and I could have gotten kicked out of the military. I could have killed somebody. <clears throat> and it's it's resulted in me being much more disciplined, much more uh, attentive to detail. And that was one of the things he says in his stories. He, he says is one of the things that got him hired with the Blue Angels is because he had learned that lesson. Yeah. That's and a, so that's a lot of courage to say those things too. Right. Humbleness and courage to say those, those, those kinds of stories, right? Yeah. No one wants to own their failures, especially mm-hmm. in public. But so like at some point, like what did you, uh, what were you doing before you got the data bank, I guess, because yeah. like, you know. Hiding. Well, <laughs> well, no, I mean, there's still a lot of things that were taking shape between. Yeah, they were. FISMA and Sorbitoxley mm-hmm. and HIPAA and all those things. I mean, we're seeing all these socks and, you know, yeah. there's a million compliance things that come mm-hmm. into these data centers. And now those are things that are being measured against for people to make purchasing mm-hmm. decisions. Yep. So I went through a period of time, and this is n- another important thing with the military. So I told you I got out of the military to be with, uh, you know, to do a family kind of thing. And I went through a period of time at my later point in Sally May and then into my next, uh, my next role, and I'll, I'll share with that in a minute, where... I did a lot of personal introspection. What do I want to do in my life? And part of that was because I had very young children and um, I was not spending the time with them uh, that I needed to. And one of those, my middle son, Joshua, um, ended up – he was born with a brain tumor and ended up at age three. We found that out because he was having seizures. And then at age five, he had the tumor removed. We then found out that it was a uh, a benign tumor. So. Bringing you full circle through that story, but there was a period of time where I needed to focus on my family, of course, and I needed to ensure that my marriage survived. And it needed to, which is now over twenty five years, and I needed to ensure that my kids survived and my kids had a father. And so I did take a little bit of a step back in in my career and to find the balance at home to yeah. find to find the balance. Um, I took, and that was one part of it. And the other part of that introspection and the things that we went through as a family, um, I, I am a, I am a man, man of strong faith, strong Christian faith. And, and that's also the way that I grew up. So it's not just me personally accepting it, but also, um, my, you know, I think I mentioned family. my, my grandfather was a preacher. My dad was trained, um, uh, to be a preacher as well, but I, I had a lot of introspection at that, that period of time. And I said, you know what, um, probably need to give back and not being so aggressive about my career, so um, cutthroat about my career. I need to focus on my family and I need to give back a little bit. And so I um, took a role 
uh, as the director of IT, which led into being chief technology officer of a um, of Lincoln Christian University in Lincoln, Illinois, and and we is moved that right in the middle of Illinois. That's right. That's where we live right now. Right. Uh, it, it, we still live in the same place uh, where we moved as a result of. So we moved from Indianapolis to this um, to this little bitty town of fourteen, fifteen thousand people in the middle of cornfield in Illinois. And originally it was just a five year five year run. Hey, you know, let's let's let everything settle down with our family, and then we'll we'll readdress that. Well, five years became seven years with the university, um, and and in that role I was both CTO and and CISO. So I was bringing security. I was kind of making my own security at that at that entity because they only had to comply with FERPA and HIPAA. And they, and when I, it was sm- a small university of about 800 students and maybe 100 staff, faculty. So it's almost an SMB kind of thing. Um, but, and that has a whole different story about, you know, learning how to how to work within a 501c3, learning how to work within a uh, an academic environment, learning how to work on a shoestring budget. Um, and, and asking for donations, not financial, but uh, equipment donations from um, various giving organizations and things like that. So I learned a lot about that type of thing while I was there. Again, opportunity. I was there for seven years. They had a transition or a coming transition of the president. And, um, and so I decided to leave the organization at that point. Um, I went for a year and a half. I know I wanted to be back in security. So what I did, so this is another another learning experience. I had a title of CTO. I had a title of CISO in a very small organization. What I did is I took a step back and became a business security analyst um, in State Farm Insurance. So I went from 100, 100 faculty and staff to 20,000 people on one campus, 100,000 people organizationally in State Farm. And I took a step back from active leadership to a- To learn. To, to learn, um, to relearn what's going on in the security industry, relearn what's going on in the financial industry, and and really to, to make that step forward. Now, admittedly, at the point when at which I transitioned, um, I still wanted to- um, I. I I, I wanted to stay at State Farm long term. I wanted to move up in their management ranks. Um, but when I got there, um, I realized that I could do that. But I, if I wanted to do that, I also, it, every single one of their managers. Uh, an MBA or something like that. No, 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 no. It wasn't that, um, which it, I would have been fine with. What it was is they they had to take time away from IT and take time away from security and spend time in the insurance industry and getting industry insurance industry certifications to sell insurance. And you're like, I don't care about that. I just want security. I, exactly. I was like, you know what? That is too far of a deviation from what I want to do in in my life. In your core. Yeah. And so I stayed with them for uh, almost a year and a half. And um, so here's another op- here's another one of those take every opportunities and be kind to people. So the way I got to DataBank is this: I'm working at State Farm as a business application security analyst. I'm doing very well there, and um, and using all my leadership skills from leading from behind rather than in front. And I get you know these typical recruiter emails. Somebody had picked up on my on my resume that was out on Indeed, 
that was out there f- before Years I went to ago. work. Yeah, yeah, that I had an A plus certification, CompTIA A plus certification. So this this person emailed me and said, "Hey, I got this great opportunity for you in Wisconsin uh, to be a workstation support analyst." Like, so. I had a couple choices. I could ignore that. I could turn around and say, you're an idiot. Why are you sending me something? Get your act together. Get your act straight. Or I can do what I did, and I responded to the guy because I knew – I just knew the person on the other side was probably some kid straight out of, out of high school or straight out of college that's trying to learn. So I responded to them kindly, and I said, thank you. That's not the kind of role I'm looking for. You picked up, your systems picked up on this thing that I did years ago. If you look at my resume, um, I'm now at this you level. You qualify for these other ones. And yeah. I qualify for this other stuff. So I got a call from that individual's boss. He said, hey, I just want to thank you for sending that email and pointing that out kindly because no, most of the time we get lambasted. They're insulted and they yeah. seem rude. When they, exactly. Yeah. You pointed out kindly. You were, you know, guy was like, yep, you're right. There's a kid on the other side of this and he's learning a lesson to look deeper, to look at what's going on. But I just want to thank you. He goes, now, if you don't mind, can I have 30 seconds of your time? I said, yep, sure. He goes, I got this role for a CISO, this little company out in Baltimore, Maryland called Edge Hosting. 60 people. They're looking for somebody that's had that's dealt with FISMA and FedRAMP. Like, okay, I dealt with FISMA when I was back at Sally May because we had to deal with it because we were in we were setting up a um, an IRS collections agency in upstate New York and the facility had to meet FISMA controls. So I said, Yeah, I've got I've got that background. You know what? Um, I'll be happy to talk to them, but keep in mind I'm not interested in moving to Baltimore, Maryland, number one. And number two, um, you know, it's kind of a smaller company right now, and I'm not sure that that's what I, I'm, I'm not sure if I want to get into the entrepreneurial side of things. I've done that before, and, and I kind of want to stay in a yeah, more big structured path, between right? Startups and emergency businesses, yeah, and exactly. Those that have arrived. He's like, "Would you just mind taking the interview?" I said, "Sure, I'll take the I'll take the phone call interview." Sure. So I did, and I sat on the phone with a guy named Mike Altman, who was their chief operating officer. And he's telling me about the company, and he's telling me what they're looking for. They're looking to expand into FedRAM. So I was like, he's like, I need somebody to come in here build a security program. So there's really no – he goes, yeah, on paper we got a security program. And he was doing a good job of selling it too. It's probably even less than on paper to be quite honest with you. It's on paper because it had to be presented to the government. But, um, but anyway, so I, I took that interview, and I was like – I still didn't want to deal with it. I, on the other side, I was like, you know, no, it does require to move to Baltimore. My wife's from Long Island, and one of my boys was in high school at the time, and um, he's like, oh, I get to be closer to mom's side of the family and stuff, and, and you know, I'm kind of wanting to get out into the world and see things anyway. So all of a sudden, my, my wife and one of my boys – uh, was, in was, was in, we're interested in going, and I'm, I'm kind of resisting this, going, no, no, no. But they called me and said, look, we want to have an on-site. We want you to fly to Baltimore, come in and, and have the conversation. And I said, okay. After being pushed by my wife, I said, okay, I'll go to Baltimore. So I did. I spent the day with them. Um, I was mildly interested in what they had to, had to say and what they had to do, but um, got home, talked about it. Two days later, three days later, whatever it was, you know, it wasn't very long. I get a call from the recruiter. He says, you got the job, and here's how much it is, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just sitting there thinking, all right, 
So I thought about it. Uh, honestly, Did I pray- it require you to move to Baltimore still? Well, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, I think, so it must not based on what you. Yeah, mean. well, it did and it didn't. Um, so anyway, I, I thought about it, I prayed about it, talked with the talked with Maria um, and even the boys about it. And everybody's like, "Yep, okay, let's go." So I took the job, and on January fifth, twenty fifteen, like like a like a kid going to boot camp, I packed my bags, I got on an airplane. And I flew to Baltimore and trudged through the streets of Baltimore towards this office building and showed up. They rented me an apartment for the first six months. I was there for two two weeks, and I was home for one week um, while we were trying to sell the house in Illinois and potentially buy a new house in Baltimore. So, again, took an, took a risk, took an opportunity. Didn't even want it. Didn't even want it. But, but you know, I—, I I, I became interested in it after the after Maria and the and the boys became interested in it, and I'd lived out there at Fort Meade before, so I, I was actually kind of getting excited about being able to take the kids to D.C. Oh, and, for sure, and show them all it's those cool. kinds of things and and whatnot, um, and live that life a little bit. Let my wife live a little closer to her family up on Long Island. So I, I warmed up to it, shall we say? But anyway, went out there and. Um, and got entrenched in, in the program. And I found out that the reason they wouldn't allow anybody to work from remote was because they, they um, had bad experiences with remote people that were just sitting there playing on Amazon or whatever during, during, yeah. the, during the day and really not getting anything done. And, and they quickly learned that um, not only did I work like a, like a crazy man, um, you know, at like, I, like they wanted because it's an entrepreneurial environment. I immediately, so it's another lesson for military people, morph. You know, if you move day to, duty, duty station to duty station or your CO or your chief or whoever changes, you have to morph into who they are in order to, to support them. Well, that's – change is, is constant. Well, I changed from uh, State Farm where you were expected to work no more than 38 and a half hours or maybe 37 and a half hours a work week to – um, which is very, com- yeah. very common in the insurance industry overall, but to work in 60, 70 or more. Um, and so I, I transitioned to that and they saw how hard I was working and how, how diligent I was working and, and, and I was helping the organization grow. Um, that even when I went home, I wasn't fooling around. I was always available. And, and this, is, this, is, this is an integrity piece. So when I was working at home, I was the only, only employee that was working at home at that time. I made sure that my Instant messaging was always available. I made sure I answered every phone call. I made sure that, like, in seconds, yeah, you have to be I was responsive. available. So they knew, um, and, and this is an embarrassing thing, but it's reality. I took certain devices to the, to the toilet with me <laughs> so that I could keep that, that instant response capability for them. So they, I, what I built is a, a trust and a rapport with them. And then so when the end of that six months came, we were having trouble selling our house. There was a little bit of an economic downturn in Illinois that didn't affect the entire country. We were having a problem selling the house. The house didn't sell. So we're going back and forth with this. My son was uh, – my oldest son was a, a was a sophomore going into his junior year in that summer of 2015. And so as a family, we had to make the decision. Are we going? Are we staying? Are we going to abandon what we have here and just pick up new over there? And um, we decided that we couldn't move. And so I went in. I talked to them. And I had a resignation letter in hand. I said, look, I, I really enjoy working here, but I can't I can't move. I can't do this. Was, I know that was part of the agreement. So I'm going to live up to my part of the agreement. I'm going to allow you to transition. I'm going to, I'm going to take care of my housing arrangements until you get a new guy in or gal. Um, I even gave them a couple of resumes to look at and they're like, no, 
they immediately threw it all out. They said, no, we don't want that. I yeah. said, well, look, I can't move. And they're like, okay, so now you can work remote. So here's the, here we're going to flip this around. We want you in Baltimore one week. We'll pay for the hotel a month, and the rest of the other three are at home. I'm like, what what happened? Well, you showed us that this is a possibility. You showed us that the, you, you built trust. You showed us that the work was getting done. So we trust you to do it. So after you gain their confidence, they give yep. you a lot more autonomy. Absolutely. And so there we go. Uh, summer of 2015, I'm now working remote uh, from uh, from Illinois, where we currently live, where we had lived, um, and where we yeah where we still live today. So edge hosting um, with them. That company was bought by DataBank in. Um, in 20, fall of 2017. Now, normally when large company buys small company. They thin the herd. They thin the herd. Um, and especially people that are C-levels, um, they probably already have one. And either you have to take a step down or so on and so, so forth. Well, Databank had a compliance person, but they didn't have a CISO. And part of the reason that they bought Edge Hosting is because of our FedRAMP program and that it was, it was working and operating. But there's a hitch. Agent, so FedRAMP requires an agency to sponsor or you can't be in FedRAMP. Well, the contract that we had that was sponsored, the agency was sponsoring us, was ran out. and We no longer had a sponsor. We had to go back all through that FedRAMP piece. Databank could have said, look, we're done with this. Um, you know, we don't need a CISO because most data centers, most data center operators do not have CISOs. I mean, if you, or, or they have maybe a director, a of compliance security, officer, compliance, somewhere. you know, something like that, who's a, who <clears throat> also is a legal, uh, you know, on the legal side of things. And so they, they're like, no, we want to build this practice and we want to keep this practice. So now, so you asked me earlier, how many times do you have to reinvent yourself to, in order to stay at a company for eight years? We're now, First of all, I had to build the program at Edge Hosting. Now I'm reinventing the situation. After at, the at acquisition, data bank. Yep. Exactly. How long was that? 2017, you said? It was 2017. And all right, so, so you'd been there for a few years. Two, two years. And then Databank bought us. And so now I've got to build an entire program um, over a Databank again. So I reinvent the situation again. Um, and so we weren't able, because Databank was so much larger than our situation at Edge, and, and so much more involved. You oh, can't yeah. just transport one over to the other. You have to rebuild it. So we did that. And um, and uh, so, yeah, uh, been at Databank now eight years. And so the third reinvention was uh, two and a half years ago. Um, I got a new, a new boss, and that new boss came in, and, and I agreed with him. But he said, look, we need – we, we can't continue to keep growing the security team. This is not common in the industry uh, for the security team to be as large. I had uh, eight or ten people at that point. Um, and a lot of those folks were focused on operations because we have a managed services arm. And he's like, we, get, we have to do something different. We need more staff, but we, but we aren't getting more security people. And I said, okay, so let me, let me go look study, research, come back and said, okay, we're going to go to a decentralized security model. But what that means is, is that we're going to, although we're not going to do operational security anymore, I need some security architects to advise the various teams that we're going to push all these security tools out to, you know, like, so 
example. We're going to we're going to push the Carrero DDoS tools or the Trend Micro IPS tools off to the network team for them to manage. Well, we need somebody who knows a little bit about security to advise them on how to operate. So I said, okay, you can keep some keep some people on the architecture side, and I said, but. The key for what our team is is compliance, and compliance and privacy are only getting bigger and bigger. And so we grew the compliance team. Um, we took away from the security team, but we grew the compliance team. And honestly, that's a trend that's going on in the industry as a whole right now from a security perspective, not the data center industry, but the security industry is compliance is becoming such a big deal right now. And the decentralized thought processes um, or or some type of thought process like that is is what's Were you just finding someone at each location and saying, give me one of your facility operations person and we're going to give them a collateral duty and teach them? Or were no. you hiring dedicated resources? We're hiring, we hire dedicated resources for compliance um, because they, they double up with legal. They double up with um, a, a number of different pieces. Um, so our, our data center operations people um, – are not the types that uh, we could bring some of them over to compliance and we could teach them, but just natively that's not uh, consistent with their job. So. Did you find yourselves, I mean, it sounds like data bank was leaning in hard, right? But mm -hmm. they also were discovering that there's, there's a need to gain the confidence of their yeah. clients, that the integrity of that facility yep. from a physical and IT perspective. Mm -hmm. So like what were you guys doing to stay lockstep with the evolutional shifts yeah. in security and IT to make sure that you're, you were responding in a way that met the mm -hmm. expectations or the optics that yeah. these companies needed to feel. So doing things like, you know, at the very beginning of this, I said I'm a transparent CISO. So one of the things that I personally had to transition is to be more open and to do things like this and actually become. So I've had to Cause learn. Because you don't see a lot of CISOs. No. Like that's why this podcast, not yeah. just for all the things, but like. This podcast from an industry perspective mm -hmm. is going to bring a great deal of value to people that don't even know what a CISO is. Like, right. I don't know who sells into you, and I bet you there's some people that don't either. Right. My thing is, I mean, I think the part that you're talking about, about the most profound parts have obviously been uh, not just the military things you're talking mm -hmm. about, but how even through the transition in the life cycle, I mean, mm -hmm. when people look at where they started in their industry and where they finish, you know, your life has a lot of ups and downs and right. life changing events from marriages to, you know, birth of kids to deaths to graduations. Exactly. And in that time, you know, there are people that take jobs for money. Some do it for titles. Some do it for pure edu education and growth. They right. like, I don't care what it takes. I don't care what I make. I need to check that box. Or I need to learn right. that thing. When you're, when you're going through this story here, like, I hope that there's more people that maybe even peel off and be like, look, I, I'm more uh, I'm more passionate about those things or I just default into it by nature. Mm -hmm. It's what I do. The, if you're self-taught, mm -hmm. that's what you're tinkering with all the time. You know? right. So, like, maybe there's some people that, like, when you're finding people that are like, well, I'm not a compliance person or I'm not a security person, but mm -hmm. they are an IT person or a network person or a whatever person. How do you how do they transcend in and out of that so they could advance their own careers? Yeah, so I would say you know you use a key word there is dabble in it. Um, you know one of the things that's been key throughout my career is, in my life is that I, I don't compartmentalize what I do for the eight laugh at that, but the eight hours of the day. Um, I, it, it bleeds over into everything else that I'm doing. So I'll, I'll read books or I'll, I'll have a trade uh, shows, trade show, or I'll have a server set up in my house where I'm just tinkering around and playing with it. Um, I'll spend that time, um, playing around with software or, or learning the new technologies that are out there. So one of them, I found myself 
because I'm doing a lot of podcasts, my my role as a CISO has really transitioned from from nuts and bolts of working on the team. I used to be a um, I, I used to be another team member that happened to be the CISO lead. And I still have that capability. In fact, I've, I've shocked a couple of people, uh, you know, that I can get in there and write scripts and poof, you know, some things happen. But my job in the past three or four years has dramatically changed to um, to doing sales work. Evangelist, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, evangelist is a good thing, but really it's it's sales, having these types of conversations. I've done more podcasts, I've done more um, webinars and things like that in the past three or four years, then I, I travel a lot and go to, a, you know, before COVID and now even post COVID, I travel a lot and go to as the speaker at a show. This is the second event this week where I've been a speaker or, or the, the conversational piece of, of, you know, what people are hearing in my life. Sometimes it's just a 15 minute deal. And sometimes it's a two or three hour deal. Right. Um, but you know, I, I do a lot of that kind of stuff right now on behalf of data bank. And so I found myself because I was doing a lot of that sometimes in, in three or four different cities a week. Um, I was losing touch with some of the things that are going on. So for yeah, example, the dynamics in, of real time in, in our industry, um, Kubernetes has, and con- containerization has become a, a big thing on the cloud side of things. And I lost, I, I lost touch because I was doing, focusing on this kind of thing. Um, and so how do I overcome that? Well, I sit down on the plane, I sit down at home, I sit down and put in the extra effort to do the reading, to do the learning, to do the playing. And for me, I can read things to get surface level, but I actually have to have my fingers into it. And so I'll sit there and you know download ESXi and play around with it. To, Sometimes to you have to so you yeah. understand it better. Right, exactly. Um, and so it sticks. So then when I'm advising customers, that's the other way that I stay up on this is I communicate with the customers. What is the and, – and, and I don't talk to the customers. I listen to the customers. And that's something that's very important that a lot of people don't do is actually listen and engage with their customers. What is it you really need? What do you think you need? Now, let me salt that with my expertise and my understanding of things by asking questions, and then we come to a solution for them on what is best and what, what what will solve their problem. And if you don't sit down and listen, you, you're not going you're not going to improve your career and, and keep keep moving forward. So with all these, you know, phasmas and all the things that are being imposed by the government for right. us to comply with mm-hmm. as more governance rolls into this you know, walk me through if you paint with a broad stroke in eight years of data bank. Mm-hmm. You've seen the role of the CISO change it seems like significantly to where now it went from something that was a part of the necessary evil for compliance or whatever else right. and now it's actually helping contribute to the acceleration or adoption rate of of more revenue right yeah. people are coming in like do you find yourself to where they're have you ever seen it where um you know you it's it really comes down to your ability to maintain something that they make you you know do something special where it helps move the needle on a deal absolutely Okay. Um, so we'll lot, continue to evolve and, and transform oh yeah, more a, into a, that. Absolutely. So data bank is known in the industry, not necessarily for our, well, we are known for our security, but we're also known for our ability to help advise customers on security. Whereas you go to a lot of data centers and this is not a knock, it's just a reality. You go to a lot of data centers or cloud providers and they say, here's the security product, go install it click this button, it installs. Now the rest of it's yours. Well, at Databank, we actually sit down and talk to our customers and educate them them a little bit. And so 
the that is where the value uh, you know i i call myself again the transparent CISO or or you know i'm always available to our customers and i spend a lot of time communicating with our customers and i think that's where the the value is is different from data bank to another organization and as a result of that um not only myself but but the the team has um has be has shown the company value there have been multiple customers and, I, and this is the part where I, I, I'm not going to share customer names, but there are multiple customers that have come to DataBank um, because of that engagement by myself or the team. And some of those people are international. Some of those people are still fr- you know, literal friends of mine where I'll sit and talk to. There's a, a gentleman uh, in Scotland. He and I um, have, have developed a friendship and he, he's a chief compliance officer for a company and, and we just get on and we talk we don't even talk security we talk about the economic impacts or when covid was going on how it's impacting over in the uk versus here and 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 working through how to address those types of issues um, as leaders within our organization and so you know the the relationship the piece of it is i i think is what key, what is key to moving us forward not only from an organization but also from a security perspective. And I think the relationship opens the doors where people are willing to rethink how we're doing security. So, you know, you go back to that term evangelist. Um, You know, part of evangelizing historically has been to convince somebody of your position and, and to do that for them to adopt your position you can't be shoving it down their throat with fire and brimstone. You have to. You, you it's have not how to. how you get disciples, right? <laughs> exactly. It's not. It's not how you get people that are going to replicate what you're saying to the next layer down and and teach and and keep going. So so my focus has been on education in in a way um, that leads to sales and leads to revenue generation for for data bank. Focuses on education that that leads to those other things, not on. How can I how can I convince you to buy my product? So I got a few questions. Yeah. How do you see the role of the CISO evolving as well as the impact mm-hmm. that the CISO has going forward on is there something else that's adopting or emerging more governance perhaps yes. or more cloud or discovery of blind spots and mm-hmm. something? I mean, what's going on? Yeah. So the biggest movement in my in my view, the biggest movement that's going on inside of the security industry right now, which has four or five different verticals underneath it, where it used to be just one, now we got four or five uh, different verticals, is in the compliance and privacy side of things. So, in 2017-2018 timeframe, we came out with you know the Europeans came out with a GDPR, big privacy regulation. It was generally speaking, it was confined to what happens in Europe. Like the EU in general. The EU in general. Um, and then – and that was fine. But what has happened is in the United States, we we don't look at things uh, federally, right? Um, typically, um, states lead and California is a typical leader. So what they did is they took GDPR and they Californiaized it and came up with the uh, California Consumer Privacy Act, CCPA. Um, and enacted that, and now there's a new regulation that's a layered on top of that, the CPRA out of California, um, that's uh, that's going into effect on January 1st of 23. There's actually 12 states that have privacy regulations going into effect on January 1st of 23. Ooh, and how will 12. that impact data centers? Well, it's going to impact data centers horribly because 
it, mostly the providers, but the data it depends on the data center. Okay, if if you if you're a data center that has managed services as part of it instead of just your typical data center, it has co-location services. It's much more stringent. And so data bank is 70% and in just rough numbers, 70% co-location, 30% managed services. So we have a fairly good sized managed services arm that we have to focus on what happens with these. If it's just colo, it's probably very little impact other than how we handle the, um, the physical security access control that's being applied to the customer that wants to come into their colo cage. Because any of the data that's inside of the colo cage is the customer's responsibility. But Here's what I'm already seeing, okay? New data privacy agreements, so new legal documents are being presented to us in droves, even from co-location customers, um, asking us to sign those. And those are asking you to comply with what? CPRA, um, in the California Privacy uh, – I can't remember the acronym. What the Is that good? Is. I mean, it sounds like it's to protect the consumer. It So the CCPA con- uh, protected the consumer to to a degree. CPRA now expands it to employee data as well. So it, it's now moving there. And there's there's some states like Virginia who have enacted laws that says whatever California does, we automatically do as well. Wow. So you've got Virginia, you've got Colorado, you've got Michigan, you've got uh, California that are all enacting these independent laws. And each one of them says something different. And that's where the challenge comes in is, hey um, – Inside California, I have to I have to do X, Y, and Z for these people. And in, in Virginia, it's this. And in, in if, if you're a citizen of that state or, or, or if you're a you know resident of that state, then then I have to comply this way. So let me let me give you a simple a simple version of this that has nothing to do with security, but will communicate kind of what we're dealing with. All right, in 49 states. Roughly, um, to my knowledge, in 49 states and and then all the territories, I think there's five territories that the U.S. has, um, an employer can say, hey, you can earn PTO time, but I can also force you to take it or lose it. You know, um, we, we can say you can only you can only earn so much. And then after that, you either have to start taking PTO to refill that bucket or lose it. California has enacted a law. Again, not not with poli- privacy. It's just an example that everybody can understand. That says if you're a resident of California, you you as the employer cannot take away somebody's earned PTO, paid time off. So at DataBank, on my team, I have 16 people on my team that are full-time DataBank employees and and roughly 60 to 65 uh, security guards. For those people that reside in California, um, they have one set of rules for their PTO. And the other people, the other 15 people, or no, I'll actually I have, I have three people on my team that are in California. So out of 16 people on the team, I have, what's the math on that? 13 people that, um, 13 people that if they don't lose their PTO, they are, if they, if they don't use it, they, they will lose it. Um, and then I've got three people that are just building a bank after, you know, their, their bank just keeps growing. So I have one set of rules for one people and another set of rules for another people, right? And how's that, how's that practically imp- uh, impact me as a leader within the organization? I have three people that are not going to take off PTO time and Thanksgiving time and at Christmas time and, and whatever. And I've got 13 people that because out. they've stored it all up are now going to rush to the end because at the end of the year, if they don't lose, if they don't use a certain amount of it, if their bucket's overfilled, they're going to lose it. So 
Now the people in California, okay, here's the flip side. Now the people in California are going, now you're dumping all this stuff on me. I'm taking PTO too. Okay. So, you know, I've got a, I've got a unwritten rule on my team, 50% Manning. That's, that's as low as we can go. Sure. And, um, and so now there's, now there's this jockeying and, and, and whatnot. But anyway, that's the reality of what we have to deal with is if every, if 12 different states come up with 12 different privacy rules instead of one federal rule that encompasses the United States. Now, I'm not a federalist or not, not a, a, a big a proponent of the federal government issuing new rules and regulations. Trust me on that one. It is not my, my, <clears throat> it's not my thing. But on the flip side of it, I got 12 states <clears throat> that are doing this um, with, a potential of another 38 states deciding to do it and follow later on. And literally right now there's 26 states that have some form of legislation going through their, le- their legislatures. And 12 of them have enacted and the, the, uh, the other 14 are, are in pending status for privacy. And so oh, privacy. And okay. so I, if I have to end up – if I as a managed service provider have to end up treating 26 different states differently and then the one group that doesn't have any rules even different than that, so 27 different rules for privacy in my organization, that's going to be tough. It can be tough, but I mean you can standardize on – like we have an unlimited PTO model. It's just right. subject to the, the – manager's decision if we right. have time do it if you don't have time it's tonight right, right? but that way i'm not banking right these people aren't using it as an annuity that they're gonna mm-hmm. just i mean we saw that in the military too right yeah. so um but yeah so how else do you see it evolving like the CISO, your role mm-hmm. how do you see it continuing to shift so there's been another issue that's come up recently um there's been two CISOs um who have been on the firing line uh, and, you know, back during the Sarbanes, when Sarbanes Oxley first came out, there was a, a lot of rumors, a lot of, hey, um, if you're a CISO, you could be going to, you know, from one set of pinstripes to another set of pinstripes. We used to wear suits back in those days in the financial industry, right? And so pinstripes talking about your suit that you wear to work versus the jail suit, right? That kind of that kind of died, died and went away. It's back. Um, we have a CISO who has... Depending on which article you read, which thing you you believe and whatnot, um, we do have a CISO who has gone through a court case and is now pending going to prison for privacy, fal- fal- falsification of of records that impacted the the stock prices and the, and oh. the ability of of the organization to meet SEC controls because the SEC is getting involved in security now. So we're talking about privacy, and then we're saying, hey, you know. We're back to, back to where we were in 2003, 2004 when we're – as CISOs, we're scared. We're not not scared really, but we're concerned we might be going to jail because now here in the past couple of months, a CISO is going through the court system for uh, – and being accused of not presenting a, an accurate picture of security, of hiding things within the organization, which has resulted in um, problems with the organization now. And granted, that situation, I don't want to go into full detail on that situation, but that situation is also a he said, she said type of thing where the CISO is claiming that he did report to the board. And this is another key thing. CISOs are are absolutely – it's been a trend 
going towards the CISO themselves reporting the security information to board members. So it's not filtered and restricted. Yeah, from the, and, uh, and that's still something that's being worked through from company to company. There's no absolute law right now or, or rule that says you have to, but the SEC is getting involved, and they, they came out with some proposed rules this past summer where not only does the CISO have to report to the board, and this is another opportunity, but there has to be somebody on the board with security credentials who mm. could understand. So it's like, you know, the old communication – it's never a communi- never you know it's never a one way communication. A communication has to have like the TCP/IP sync act sync right. You know I send you something, you acknowledge it, and I send back the acknowledgement that you. And then then we can finally transmit the message right. So the the nonverbal uh, you know all that kind of stuff. But we're kind of getting to that point now where um, where that type of thing is happening where. CISOs are going to have to report to the board. They're going to have to report accurate information to the board either either directly or through the environmental social governance programs, the ESG programs that are out there. And and then if they don't, there's penalties for that. And apparently there's penalties for going to, you know, that could lead to go to jail. Now, this guy, again, he said, she said, this guy says that he did report to the board, that he did report to his CEO, and both of them said, hey, hide that and we got your back. Oh. And now now you know now it's becoming he says he said she said and then another situation was not the most recent um I believe it's yeah it's not the most recent CISO at Twitter nor the one before that but one two two layers back at Twitter I think it's Twitter where <coughs> uh he's been presenting before Congress because of SEC type of stuff um and and sharing sharing stories where CISOs are not being heard when they're communicating. Uh, so they're being things. added for compliance and security. Being added and then... as a checkbox for compliance and security, and then they're not being they're not being heard. They're not being and not being listened to. Um, so there there's there is a there is a shift going on right now in leaning more towards the power of the CISO. Trying to make them like a third-party mm-hmm. objective that's actually, although reporting to the COO, I'm guessing, but is right. actually going to now have a dot line to the mm-hmm. board for compliance? Yeah. So at Data Bank, I report to the COO, um, who is a member of the L1 team. And, and I know at any given point, if I need to, I could pick up the phone and call our CEO, Raul. I have direct conversations with him many times during the year. Um, I've never interacted with the boards, but that's because I trust my L1s are communicating what needs to be communicated up to the board level. Um, now that may not be, and, and the board hasn't in turn come back and asked yet, except through ESG program on what the status is of our security environment. But I know that they're reading our audit reports. We have 18 audits. So when I, when I started this in 2015, we had five audits that we did on, on an annual basis and we're now 18 audits in order to maintain all of these standards necessary for the data center. So you ask, what's another trend? Uh, so I said, hey, you know, privacy's up there. All these audits are happening. There's got to be at some point some some agreement within the industries that a particular audit will cover everything. I mean, uh, data, oh. data bank is spending because the Fed the feds require the FedRAMP or FISMA audit done by their people or their certified people, the three PAOs. Can't do them by anybody else. Then you got the ISO 27001. They're like... Hey, you can only do it only do it by a certified ISO auditor, um, and you know this customer doesn't accept what we did over here with FedRAMP as equal equal. So now we have to go do the ISO. 
contractually they're obligating us to do ISO. And oh, by the way, yeah, we're not going to do SSA 18 or that customer is not going to accept the SSA 18 because they only want ISO because they're an international organization. Um, so, so we do 18 different audits right now within our organization and we spend a million dollars at least just panning out and, and I'm rounding numbers off here, but roughly a million dollars a year um, in time, effort, and handing it out to the auditors in order for data bank to give a customer a piece of paper that says, we're good. There's got to be a better way to do this, but the industries, um, the industries are each creating their own audits for their own verticals. You got HIPAA. HIPAA has um, a, a HIPAA audit or the high trust audit. Um, you know, the financial industry has GLBA and they have SOX and, and different things. Um, the education industry has FERPA uh, that they that they want to live within, and and what you guys are lacking, I think, is a third party professional services organization whose job is to aggregate all those standards, well, and they're the ones that maintain a certification as an auditor or something, yeah, and then but they do that. That's that they, they already do, them do all. That. Every one of those ones. Well, it sound like you were saying some can only audit this and some can only audit that. I'm well, like, you need one more layer. That's like so we have that layer. Okay, so. <clears throat> that's that's part of the problem in the industry. So the AICPA governs the auditors that do um, Sarbane or that, that do um, uh, SSAE eighteen, SOC one, SOC two, SOC mm-hmm. three. Right? Um, there's nobody that technically, except for the Department of Health and Human Services, that governs um, HIPAA. There's no overarching body. High Trust would love to be that, but they are an independent 501CX organization. Um, they don't like they don't like people to know that because they really go out there. I mean, they even created their name High Trust. That's very similar to High Tech, which is the law from 2008 2009 period. They really they, they created that High Trust to make it look like they're the ones that that are the law. Um, then. You've got, you know, ISO, which is an international standards organization that wants to govern their own people. And you've got State Ramp that has its own group of people that says you have to do it this way. And the federal government will accept no one except for a 3PAO that's been certified by them. So when, when you say, hey, you know, we got we to gotta bring yeah, these guys aggregate, together. There's like... We, 20 of them. You, Why don't you have somebody to go and do one audit for can't. 18 different line items? So some companies are some companies out there are helping with this. So, um, so for example, our AICPA auditor can also do a HIPAA audit, can also do the PCI DSS audits, um, can also help us out with the Sarbanes-Oxley audit, can also help us out with the ISO 27001. How long do these audits take? So we spend about six months of our year actually conversing with and working with audits, auditors. And I have, um, I have uh, eight people on my compliance team that when the audits are happening are pretty much fully dedicated to doing sure. the audits. For and, six months. And keeping the wheels on. Mm-hmm. They're just dedicated to showing they can still do what they said they could do. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. It's a ton of money that, that we spend – on behalf of our customers, and it's very hard to go back to the customer and say, I'll take that money Are back. There, oh, for sure. Are there more uh, – you see more regulations and audits being yeah. rolled out every – like how many on average? So um, 
So this year's a big one with the new the 12 new privacy laws. I know the federal government would like to issue a new privacy law. I've been on Capitol Hill in a couple of senators' offices and congressmen's office, offices as part of a group from Kansas because um, we have data centers in Kansas that went out to um, talk with them about privacy regulation. So there's multiple options on the table from a privacy perspective at the federal level. So I expect something coming from that. Um, FedRAMP is technically right now, so FISMA is a law. FedRAMP is technically nothing more than a presidential executive order right now. Um, and that is being codified into law. It's been tried for eight years, seven years now, um, and it keeps stalling, but it keeps getting closer and closer. Um, last year, it was part of it was originally part of the Defense Authorization Act. It got pulled out. They're, they tried to put it back in the Defense Authorization Act this year to bury it underneath that. So even within the federal government, you're talking DHHS, Health and Human Services. They require the HIPAA audits. You got FedRAMP that's governing the federal systems that are non-military. And then you have CMMC, the, the, the maturity model that the DOD has put together and DISA has put together in order to govern DOD data. So even within the federal government, you can't get just one scenario. You got, and, and then, of course, you got FISMA as well um, that, they've, that they've all put together that you have to comply with. There's new executive orders that have come out of the White House um, regarding critical infrastructure that CISA the DHS, the um, Homeland Security, and and their their sub-agency, CISA, are responsible for governing. And they keep expanding the, the role and responsibility of CISA um, with new executive orders um, that, that keep coming out. So the president can write an executive order. So, um, so for example, when the solar winds situation happened, um, when the um, – Colonial pipeline situation happened. We received two new executive orders as a result of those situations regarding critical infrastructure cyber uh, cybersecurity requirements. And then since then, CISA has come out and used those executive orders, which are essentially law, without going through Congress and um, and and being enacted as or codified. So they're essentially laws um, that. From presidential administration to presidential administration can be rescinded or reinforced or added on to. Um, and so CISA is the governing agency over that. And so once one of those EOs goes out, then they come in and they put in a whole bunch of new operational requirements in order to meet the needs of the EO. So the EO may come out and say critical infrastructure is defined as, you know, gas pipelines and and energy producing this or 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 even hospitals uh, type of thing and then the CISA is responsible for coming out and putting all the rules together that we have to comply with and so i see a lot more of that coming out from the federal side of things and and you know this situation with um, russia ukraine and all the ransomware attacks that have been occurring even before that are driving that and that was the issue with colonial pipeline was uh, ransomware they're driving more and more eos they're driving more and more granularity from cisa about how to comply with the eos and every single eo that comes out tends to expand the, the definition of critical infrastructure even further and further currently data centers are not technically um, believe it or not, are not technically on that list, but our customers are on the list. So we have to comply by proxy, uh, if you sure. will, uh, as a result of our customers. It's one of their, yeah. So let me ask you this mm -hmm. with all the complicated stuff, 
Because every time I sit down and talk to, I, I will sit down with someone whose primary job is ESG or someone whose mm -hmm. primary job is sustainability. And it's so amazing how much time you can spend on on one, any one topic like this, but mm -hmm. with the complicated stuff that already exists, 18 mm -hmm. audits in a year. How do some data center operators not have a CISO? <laughs> Darn good question. Um, well, I think first of all, they just have a huge compliance officer on steroids of some kind. Compliance officer on steroids. That's number one. But number two, they don't, the IT. they don't have a managed services side of things, so they're <clears> strictly <throat> providing building power, paying, and oh, that's how that yeah, makes more sense. That's actually. so without without identifying names because I'm not you know don't want to bring up necessarily our competitors, but let's just say there's there's a lot of our competitors don't do the managed services side, and because they don't have that, and so they don't have to have. They, they have to have a physical security program and they have to comply with the physical security side of things. But I also believe because you know, one of the advantages of of data bank being owned by a larger um, a larger entity in Digital Bridge, there's a whole bunch of other data center companies that are underneath the Digital Bridge family. So I'm able to com communicate with people like from Vantage or or similar type of scenarios, or through our manage our our mergers and acquisitions efforts. <coughs> I'm able to communicate with some of our competitors. So, for example, we just bought you know, this year in March. We announced the purchase of Osiris One's data centers in Houston. And through that process, um, we've been able to have – I've been able to have uh, conversations with my comp my competitors' counterparts, right? Yeah. And I can tell you that every single M&A that happens, every single situation that we go into – Every conversation I have, Data Bank is leading the way by having a CISO um, because these other people I'm talking to really should have CISO roles, but they've got a senior director of security or senior director of compliance, and they just haven't elevated that position yet, but it's coming, especially for those like Equinix or DRT who are uh, publicly traded when the SEC issues their rules in about a year. Um, they're going to have to have a CISO. They're going to be forced to have a CISO or a virtual CISO or somebody they put their neck they, – they, they literally put the neck on the line with um, with credentials that will prove their uh, their worth. Well, listen, this has been some pretty incredible stuff. There's a few more things I wanted to cover with you, mm -hmm. right? Like, So who are the people in this industry right now that are in a role that typically gravitate more towards – I mean, we talked about the veteran stuff and which mm -hmm. rates they come out of the military that makes a lot of sense. But if there's people in the industry right now and they're doing something and maybe they're not fulfilled or inspired or you know, they just don't feel like what they're doing is of significance and they tinker or they're IT or they're mm -hmm. already nerd enough to be able to be like, look, I could, I could understand that. Where do those people come from? How do you find those people? Because it almost seems very niche, mm -hmm. but it sounds like at the same time it's just a hybrid yeah, that has a passion for something more than the other. It, it is a hybrid, um, and, but you know, I find I find my people um, by developing relationships. Um, almost everybody, well, at one point on my team, everybody, every single person that I hired on my team was somebody that I had known either uh, through the through the industry or personal life that I have um, that I brought on board, and that's still been the case even in the past couple of years. Um, I do find it. You mean like some of them were vendors too, though? Like the ecosystem itself? Like yeah. you hired someone that was doing stuff for you? And I'm like, I liked that person. Yeah, okay. exactly. Um, but I will tell you, it's becoming harder and harder to find um, 
so this this well, let me take a step back. This recent situation post COVID, where there's been a lot of movement in the job industry. Period. The IT industry. Period. There's been a lot of movement um, salary wise. There's been a lot of movement of people. Um, has has proven difficult for for me and my team to hire people. I have I have a number of situations where we've interviewed some some people okay. who thought that they were of a senior level or they've interviewed for senior level or mid-level. I've had people get in the interviews and we, you know, apparently some, some people are just trying to fill a body or fill a position with a body because um, the people that are coming to these roles are not expecting the way that we're interviewing. We're interviewing with details. Um, we're, so when I interview a, a prospective um, employee, I do a, a four-layer approach. I'm probably giving away a little bit of a secret here, but yeah, hey, okay, your resume says this. Give me some evidence that you know what you're talking about. Uh, so, for example, if uh, if it says that you know about PCI DSS or it knows about HIPAA, so tell me the difference between an AOC or an ROC. And, and so I'll start there. They get the answer right, then I'll take them down another layer. Okay, so where at inside of PCI DSS does it talk about utilizing um, a web application firewall, or where at inside of HIPAA does it talk about encryption? How does it require? Is it required, or is it addressable um, inside of HIPAA? And those are two terms. So, so as the interviewer, I need I need to be on my toes as well because I'm sp- asking specific questions about is is encryption addressable or is it required? And those are two different things inside of HIPAA, inside the law specifically. And if somebody knows what they're doing and knows what they're talking about, they'll be able to tell me the difference between those and why uh, in HIPAA it's a required type of scenario, okay? Um, another thing that I do when somebody tells me they're technical, okay, and they're security, let's have some fun with that, all right? So tell me, what is the best algorithm and key strength that you want to use on encryption for a HIPAA type of environment or, or, or a, a highly secure type of environment. And I cannot, I cannot tell you how many people come into, the, come into these interviews for senior level positions that, number one, don't know what the difference is. And, and I don't mean the technical difference. I mean the literal letters difference between RSA and, and AES encryption, number one. And number two, the key strength themselves you know, the difference between 128, 256, and 512 or, or something along those lines. And, um, and unfortunately, I'm also finding people who are cheating on interviews. I had an individual I was interviewing with that was Googling it, Googling it, and she was trying to hide it. And I was seeing in, in, in her glasses ah. that she was doing it. And when it, when, she, when it wasn't coming up fast enough, she's like, oh, I'm sorry, my internet, my, my internet garbled up what you said. Can you repeat that question? Buying her a few extra seconds, uh, you know, extra 30 seconds or whatever to finish what she's doing. I'm like, no, this is, you know, the, the magic movement of people <laughs> and then the prices that they're asking for when they're moving right now in the last two years has been has been dramatic. But this new this new situation, the economic downturn that we're about to go into, you know, in the past couple of days, weeks, uh, probably close to 20, 30,000 IT people have been let go in Silicon Valley. That that um, pandemic, if you will, will spread that flu, that disease, whatever it will spread across the country as the economic situation in the in the country um, 
changes over the next six months to a year. And so it'll be easier to hire people. But right now, um, going back to your question, I'm taking people from all, all different industries. I can you know take people from a financial industry, from a healthcare industry and bring them in. If they can answer those questions for me, which are fairly basic, you know, if you want to call yourself a security professional, in fact, if you want to call yourself a system administrator or a, or a, um, or, or a network administrator, you've got to know the difference between an algorithm and a key strength and, and what is the proper one to apply um, without Googling it, without trying to cheat on the interviews. Um, those are just some very basic questions. And, and so, you know, finding the right people, I'm looking at all the industries, I'm looking from everywhere. Um, they don't have to be in the data center industry. Can they fail one of those questions? What's that? Can they fail one of those questions? Fail and forward. Yeah, but I mean, sure. like if they only answered, you know, three of the four, yeah. you'll, you'll, that's enough blind spots you could work with. Sure. So I, I try and take somebody down four layers. If I could take them down two or three, then I'm depending on the depending on the the level of the individual that I'm trying to hire for. So if I'm a senior level, I probably want to go down to at least three levels and get it pretty close to right. Um, or if somebody's going to be honest with me and say. I don't, no, I don't know, know but I know where to look for it. That's another thing the military taught me um, way back there in in, yeah, in Washington know. was, you know, all, we got all these pubs on the wall, <clears throat> publications on the wall. We got all these pubs on how these systems operate. And I would sit there in the middle of the night on these 12-hour watches. You know, I told you about the 248, 272s, and I would just go through the pubs learning where certain subject matters were so that if an emergency happened, if something happened, I know where to go and grab it. So if somebody's interviewing with me and, they get, and I get to level two or level three with them with those questions and they're like, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but here's what I would do if I were in the actual situation in order to find that answer. And here's Ooh, how I would analyze enough. the data in order to get you an answer. And when somebody comes to me and says, I don't know, I number one, humble and honest. Number two, I know where to go to find it. And number three, I have the gumption to get back with you in a respectable time period. That's the type of person I want to hire because I'm looking at them from an ethical perspective at that point saying, I can teach a lot of stuff if somebody's humble, if somebody's honest, honest and, yeah. and, and ethical about their response and customer service driven. You know, Jocko uh, Willing's got that, you know, extreme ownership. Um, that is a huge, uh, it, I, I'm not going to go and say it's a Bible, but that's certainly a big deal inside of our, our organization from a customer service ownership perspective is Hey, we don't know. We don't know everything, especially what customers are doing, but we can give them the respect of owning the problem, getting them a solution, and getting back to them um, in a timely response. And being transparent when you and do it. And being transparent, yeah, and all the other stuff with it. But yeah, so I pull people from lots of industries. I I'm willing to train. I'm, people are. It's okay to fail. Fail is a learning opportunity, not a failure. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so if you can do that honestly and earnestly, I will I will hire you. I like that. Let me ask you this question. Mm -hmm. So, like, did your firstborn get in the same family business as you did with your dad? He like, tried. So you have a future CISO in the house? Well, probably not. Okay. Um, so initially when he got out of high school, so th this well, you have one in the air force right now. Right? Well, so that's the one I'm talking about. Okay. He's the, he's the eldest. So he originally went straight from high school to be a CTI, the linguist. And so that's one of the, not only do I know, you know, I've experienced his, his fail forward it's scenario. He hard. did not make it through. He, he's one who has a lot of language, languages come easy to him. Even to this day, um, he got picked up for Russian, um, and, made it through three quarters of the program. And um, so then he got moved over to be a hospital corpsman. 
um, as a result of that. Um, he did well in that and without going into all the details because that's his career, um, but he's taken a lot of the lessons I've taught him from business and personal um, and he's turned opportunities into reality. So he literally um, on uh, on a January morning, I think it was January 7th, 8th, whatever this year, um, the Navy let him out after four and a half years um, of active duty as enlisted and the Air Force he swore into the Air Force as a sec- second lieutenant. Good uh, for him. Uh, within within hours, he drove. He was stationed in New Jersey. He was at Earl Naval Station in New Jersey. Drove from there down to McGuire, signed in. Of course, that that he knew that he was going to do that. It's not you know just showed up on the doorstep oh. and said, "Hey, I'll go." It you know, it's, like it's, a, it's all of the package. You know, the packages <clears throat> and stuff. A year's worth of effort to get to that point. But he's in the medical service corps, so basically hospital administration. Um, and not the not the practitioner side of things in in the, in that and his he has a real passion for finances and business and so he's probably going to take that track. Uh, I got you. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, I know that <clears throat> we've been here for a while mm-hmm. because um, this is one of the things that I know the least amount about, right? Mm-hmm. Which is why this will probably be one of the podcasts that you've heard me speak the least amount on because. <laughs> This is something that's more prevalent, right? And and your side of the world is impacting us as consumers. Plus, right. I see the impacts that it's beginning to make now on on operators and understanding w- which groups have them, have CISOs, and which ones have, you know, heavy hitting compliance groups. It makes a ton of difference. It comes down to the services or the managed services they're offering. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as we bring this thing home, I always ask a few questions like, "What do you tell people you do?" What do I tell people I do? It depends on who I'm talking to. Um, but I always tell people that if I told you, I'd have to kill you. Oh, for sure. That's, yeah, always... that's, that's always a fun thing. But no, really what I do is I tell people I do what I love. Um, and most people, believe it or not, most people um, know what cybersecurity is now. So here's an example. They've you seen know, enough of those commercials of that dude in Florida that's yeah. talking about ransomware. Yeah. Five, <laughs> five years ago, if I told people I was a CISO, <clears throat> they'd be like, what's that? Okay. Now... Literally, right before I sat down here with you, I was driving up the street. I saw a place to get a haircut. Never been there in my life. Pulled in, said, hey, you got uh, you got five minutes to, to buzz this thing off. And they're like, yep. So the question is, what do you do? Cybersecurity. There's three barbers in there. And one of the guys was, oh, that's what I want to do in my life. He's a young kid. So we started talking. The guy that was actually giving me the haircut is like, yeah, I, I understand all that cybersecurity stuff. I get my kid to do it for me, but I know that I need to be protected. So this, that's a huge change yeah. in five years where had I sat down five years ago and said, oh, yeah, do cybersecurity. I'd been like, what the What's heck that? is that, right? So now when I tell people that I'm a CISO, I tell them I'm a leader of people who protect networks and ensure privacy. And that really comes through with a lot of people because the, the people are understanding those privacy laws right now. They're understanding the whole hacking thing. Ransomware has been one of the biggest uh, marketing tools that has uh, made cybersecurity become a household name. And then, of course, also because of COVID, everybody's working or had at one point, everybody was working at home and everybody was pushing, companies were pushing cybersecurity. I mean, even Xfinity and you know, various service providers are telling you in pamphlets when you sign up for your home internet security. You know, if, if you're if you're found to be you know pushing out a botnet, you're in trouble. You know, so people yeah. understand cybersecurity now, whereas five years ago, they didn't. So interesting. 
when I guess which one last question before I get to my final final question. Mm-hmm. Are there any verticals in, of industry that are as intense on needing CISOs than us because we aggregate every industry, right? Every mm-hmm. industry is advanced through technology and we we home the machines that um, advance those technologies. So you have to deal with the reason why you have so many is because you have medical industry or finance industry mm-hmm. or et cetera. Right. Are there any other industries that have as many, like would there be a bigger demand for CISOs in, you know, not in the mission critical vertical, but manufacturing or retail or yes. I guess those. Yes. Um, all of those are true. And in fact, can you transcend between industry knowing that you have standard compliance? Okay. Yeah, yeah you can. In fact, because of regulations such as the New York financial, um, the, the financial law that was placed in, in New York state, every single company that does anything financial transaction wise, including real estate transactions. So mortgages, um, actually brokers that are selling homes and so anybody who does financial transactions in the state of state of New York, this is just an example, has to have someone that's credentialed on their staff. So even if it's a one person SMB, that would be a really small business, a mom pop business who is selling real estate, they now have to have somebody on staff that is advising them on cybersecurity if they deal with financial transactions, banking transactions, things Mm -hmm. like that in the state of New York. Now, it's a little bit of an overreach, but it's a reality. Um, And so that's why we've seen the rise of the V-CISO, the virtual CISO, Mm -hmm. where I as CISO am not dedicated to one company. I've now got, like a lawyer, I've got 50 yeah. companies like on retainer. CMO, yeah. Mm-hmm. I get it. And so that is becoming <laughs> extremely popular because, uh, unfortunately, SMBs can't afford us. Um, unless, yeah. un- unless you're unless you're an up-and-coming, let's say you're a security analyst, a senior security analyst that just wants to get to that level of having that first title as a CISO, that's the type they can afford. But then there's insurance regulations so rant, I told you ransomware has been the biggest marketer of cybersecurity that we've had ever. Well, cyber insurance, <laughs> cyber insurance now is becoming uh, – is a whole other topic we could spend an hour on. Oh, but, I'm sure we'll have virtual cyber. Right? I mean once we get the but, diverse. Yeah. But those those <clears throat> cyber insurance policies five years ago used to be, oh, yeah, here you go. It's a, it's a, it's a rider on top of your regular E&O or, or other type of policy. Now they're independent policies. They're coming out with 500 question security questionnaires that you have to, that are essentially legal attestations that you're doing security. And you can't just go and check boxes stuff because if you do, and then you get hit by ransomware, they're not paying for it. And then they're going to, they're going to bust you for fraud. So Again, virtual CISOs are coming in. They're answering those questionnaires. They're being on staff from a virtual perspective, fractional, as you put it, um, You know, 10 hours a month on retainer, 20 hours a month on retainer for these SMBs to do that kind of stuff and be the named individual that is um, for that SMB or for, for that organization. So that, that's a huge, a huge piece of, of what's going on right now. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I I gotta tell you I didn't know. Um, well, obviously, to by how little I spoke, that's how little I knew about what a CISO's roles, responsibilities, mm-hmm. or even how they get into that role. So, yeah. you know, that kind of leads me to the final question: Is what's your advice to anybody in this industry that wants to one they don't know anything about this industry and they want to get mm-hmm. in, or two they're in this industry and they want to maybe go towards this path that you guys are on? Okay, good question. So, 
lots of nuggets have been presented on how I got in, how you can get in over the last what two hours or three hours that we've been sitting here, two and a half hours we've been sitting here. But if I were to boil it down to this, um, please don't go to college and go to a cybersecurity program and come out of college with a four-year degree or a, or even a six-year master's, you know, four-year to four-year to master's program, and then come in and demand high-paying pa- high salaries um, and tell everybody you know everything. Um, this is a type of a job where a college degree is not going to get you the knowledge you need. You need the school of hard knocks. You need to f- sit through a 40-hour incident response. You need to deal with nation-state attackers. You need to understand the difference between nation-state and be able to recognize those versus script kiddies that are just sitting at home because they got nothing better to do and they're hitting you. You need to understand the concepts of, uh, that, that we have out there. There's cyber hygiene. You need to understand the legal concepts on privacy and so on and so forth. So that's my biggest thing is don't go to college and expect to come out and become a magical CISO or magical security analyst. What I tell people, and not because you're sitting across the table from me, not because Overwatch and and whatnot is is military-oriented, but I tell people really, really, really consider the military if you want to go into cybersecurity because you get the practical experience along with the book training it's necessary. Not only that, you get to do some pretty fun stuff. The military, U.S. military in the United States is legally the only organization that can do offensive cybersecurity, meaning attack back. Everybody else is defensive. Everybody else is already on the defensive. They can if, if I were to if I were to hack back at somebody that's hacking at me, I am violating federal law. I'm violating all sorts of other wiretap laws and all these other kinds of things that are out there that could that could legitimately Put land in me prison. in jail. Right. Yeah. Even to the point that the DOJ came out within the last year, Department of Justice came out in the last year and said, look, um, there's a, there's a group of people out there that that are what you know what we call um, gray hat hackers. They're people who will go and hack systems with good intent, um, and then share that information with the people they hacked and said, "Hey, fix this, fix this, right?" And they're, what they're looking for is they're looking for a bounty. So they're making money because they come, you know, let's say they come to data bank and they say, Take a "Penetration hey, test, yeah." Yeah, well, so, no, that's different. But um, so penetration test is actually a contract that I sign with somebody and I give them information oh. and they go off and do it. I, what I'm talking about is you go home tonight, you have no contract, you sit down and start hacking away at databank and then you go, hey, uh, your portal has, you know, send me an email and says your portal has a vulnerability. I'm not going to tell you what the vulnerability is until we agree how much you're going to pay for the oh, bug bounty. Really? Okay, those are the gray hatters because um, – and then the black hatters are, are the real nasty attackers. You know, they're the ones that are out there doing for malicious purposes. So um, the white hats are the penetration testers. They're under contract. You're, you know they're doing it, you know, so on and so forth. So um, so the DOJ came out, let's say, within the last year and said, look, there's a lot of value. We understand that you gray hatters are out there doing this stuff. There's a lot of value in you informing and sharing that. So we're going to look with a blind eye towards the activities that you're doing as long as you are within some parameters that are legitimate. Once you start attacking and then get caught and then go, oh, well, I was I was doing this for, you know, nice purposes, 
um, then they're going to prosecute as a, as a hacker, as an attacker. But if they're doing it and then legitimately handing over the information to a company like DataBank and saying, here's what you need to fix, then they're going to turn a blind eye to prosecuting um, law. So it's like this. Um, in some states, like my state of Illinois, um, God love them, the law enforcement officers are all over the roads looking for speeders all over the place. You come to a place like Texas, other places, you don't see a cop every five miles sitting on the highway with a speed gun looking for him to looking to pick you up, right? And so as a result, you know, you could do a five or you could do 10 over on the highway and not have to worry about getting caught. So government there is turning a little bit of a blind eye to, you know, going 85 in an 80, right? Whereas in Illinois, they're like, got you at 71 in a 70. Um, well, that's because it's a form of economy. I mean, like well, that's, it's, it's, it's a revenue generator. It's a revenue generator is what it is. You're <laughs> absolutely right. And, and there's also a little bit of other things. Um, but anyway, point point being is the DOJ has come out and said, I'm not going to bust you for going 85 and an 80 um, if you're doing it for – if you're just doing it for right purposes, if you're just – you know, just moving along and not causing problems. But if you're doing, you know, if you're doing 100, if you're doing 90, if you're weaving, you're doing 85 and you're weaving in and out of traffic, and then when you get caught, go, oh, I really didn't mean that, then I'm going to bust you. That's that's basically what's going on right now with the DOJ. Oh, wow. So, so yeah, um, that's, that's uh, you know, those are some of the things that are going on in, in the environment. So, now, so back to your questions, how do you get into this? The military is is one way to get into it. Yes, you can go to college. If you're going to go to college to do this, go to a community college, get yourself hired on at the same time with an IT firm and start learning workstation uh, support, learn systems administration, learn networking in, in conjunction with your cybersecurity. So if you look at my career path, my predominant career path has been as a network administrator running routers, running uh, servers, things like that. And security was a was a, a collateral duty during – I was on the help desk. Yeah, my, my, be- my primary job was helping people through mainframe queries and things like that. Security was a collateral duty. Then I moved on to the ISP. I was a technical operations manager. I ran the servers. I ran the network. Security was a, um, a, a secondary duty. So – Look at it from that perspective, and as a result, I I have a background of understanding TCP/IP routing. I have understanding of how Windows Server Unix servers work, and I can get into and, and work these kinds of things. So, um, look at it from a practical, uh, hands-on approach, uh, and you'll be much more effective inside of a security side of things. Now, on the flip side, I told you if there's pretty much five verticals underneath the security world, and there's systems administration, there's security operations analysts, and so on and so forth. But there's this other vertical that we've been talking about, and it's the compliance side of things. So if you want to get into the compliance side of things and not security operations and technical operations, um, this is actually bringing a lot more people into the security industry than had been in the past. And it's also very good because it's bringing in um, more females into the environment. Um, you know, the... The IT industry has been a very male-dominated industry, whereas an industry like legal has been very balanced or, or has had females in that as, as, um, as paralegals, as lawyers, so on and so forth. The compliance industry um, is really taking 
from the legal industry and because of the privacy and things like that. And and so we're able to get more women into the environment as a result of that horizontal into the, the compliance vertical. So if you want to do that, um, you know, go work at a, at a law office that specializes in cybersecurity or jump straight into compliance. Um, it seems like compliance. a great place to, to pull from. Yeah. So jump straight into <laughs> compliance as a junior compliance engineer and, and use, utilize your organization skills, utilize um, basic business skills and be willing to then dive in again and learn, take the time and effort to learn exactly what the, the HIPAA law says, exactly what's required from PCI and go through the audits and things like that and work your way up inside of that vertical. So, um, so yeah, in the only vertical that I would say that you need to go through a, a college education side of things, if you're going to go into it inside the security world is in, um, application development. A lot of app dev people, they go through four-year uh, education, they learn, um, their programming and, and those types of skills there. When they come out, I would suggest that they spend some time in practical app dev and then take on security's collateral duty and then grow into a security professional that's focused on SecOps, app dev, however you want to put it. Well, well let me tell you, <clears throat> first, thanks for your time. Mm -hmm. And thanks, and I, you know, I was late and you know why, but I apologize for that again. No, you don't need to. Um, you know, my, the genesis behind this whole thing, right, mm -hmm. was... I, we started this conference called DCAC Live, um, mm -hmm. you know, seven years ago. Right. And and the biggest complaints I always got was that there were people that were uh, like, there's not enough data center conference DCAC shows, so do mm -hmm. more of those. Or, you know, you have panels and, you know, X amount of time, but you only really get to hear for a few minutes from each of those people. Mm -hmm. So the biggest complaint was not enough DCAC Live conference or not enough opportunity to really dig deep into um, certain topics, certain people. Right. And we are, uh, we have a completely different um, lineup and, and run of show that we're doing moving forward based on a couple of things that we've learned over the course of time. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> because the objective of the conference, you know, we've always just really had a big on networking, but now the demand from the people that attend, I mean, we had more than 750, I think, registered to attend DCAC Live this year. Those people are determining, because this is their conference, like what they want. And what they want is they want to learn more. There's a lot of people that want to network, but there's also a lot of people that want to learn. Right. And a lot of those people have a lot of overlap, right? So there are people like myself that will take a podcast like this and break it into two or three days and listen to it as they're on their morning walk mm -hmm. or their workouts or on that long road trip that's two to three hours. And they'll say, I could listen to you know, my George Michael CD collection. Like, <laughs> like I say that because I always tease one of my guys for that. Yeah. Or... uh or I could listen to this podcast and I could I could arrive and now I not only know right. what what they know who you are right and they know you know you're from your family and how they're mm -hmm. from a lineage of military to how you became military and how your son is so right <clears throat> but they'll learn a little bit about how um, you could get into what a CSO is mm -hmm. and how can they maybe because there's maybe someone in IT that's like the really heavy hitting over here tons of passion in this and this is something that they would rather not have to deal with. But if there's some things that allow them to, to kind of gravitate more towards that, it, it advances the industry up while changing the quality of life or even more purpose yeah. or more fulfillment to right. someone within this industry. So I'm glad because there's also things that you talked about that really applied more towards just the life cycle of life. I, mm -hmm. There's a lot of young professionals here uh, in this industry. There's a lot of folks that haven't been around very long. The right. industry itself isn't very old, right? But 
it's funny uh, now knowing, you know, I started it in 2000 when I got out mm-hmm. of the military. And I've got to see a lot of things. But, like, I remember where I was when I was in my 20s and 30s. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'm in almost I'm in my late 40s now. And I look at this and I'm going to go, I see where there were periods in my life where I was just trying to survive, you know. Yeah. And there are chapters in my career where I was looking to literally reinvent myself. Right. And and that it's okay to find that balance and go back and forth because at the end of the day, it's a, it's not about arriving and, you know, the final result. It's about the process, you know, the iterative improvements on the daily. Right. And it's the journey. You have to enjoy what <laughs> you're is. doing. Obviously, in talking to you, it didn't take long for us to get to this. No. And, but listen, it's because you're passionate about what you do for a living and it mm-hmm. radiates from you, which I'm sure benefits Databank in the way in which all of your clients have a great deal of confidence in the integrity of security that you have in your business. Right. I'm obviously a very passionate learner, so I could sit here for hours and keep going. But my, my objective in tying it all back together was I just really wanted to have a platform that allowed people to know not only more about this industry, but how they could get into it. Right. And and how they can kind of evolve and go backwards and forwards in this industry, not backwards and forwards, but have different pivots of mm-hmm. direction and strategy. But now they leave and they know who you are. So now someone's someone probably has an idea of something that you probably need and and you didn't communicate it as clear as you may have thought, but they understand you right. enough or understand your type of people enough to be like, I need to let this guy know that we offer this that could help him have this much better, either a better quality of life or a a much more, um, a higher level of productivity, Mm -hmm. right? So either way, I think that this podcast was great because it served all of those. It kicked all those buckets. So if I go back, I normally get done with these podcasts and I go, did I give these people what they've asked us to do, which was the genesis behind this whole conference? And I think that this one was fantastic. And I think that some people may look on and be like, that's a long last podcast. Well, listen, man, we all are still learning, you right. know, and we all, some of us, I mean, there are some of us at the letter in, in our journey and there are some at Y, but there are some still stuck in A, B, right. C, and D. So if you really want to learn, this is a podcast that will teach you a lot about this side of a growing industry that has a lot of emerging things from a compliance and security basis. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So thank you. I've, I've loved it. And I've loved sitting down here talking with you and, and sharing my life and, um, and sharing where I've been and hope it, hope it helps somebody. And if anybody heard something that they want extra information on or wants to just reach out. Uh, feel How free can they to... find you? LinkedIn? Yeah, LinkedIn. Uh, Mark Haupt, M-A-R-K-H-O-U-P-T. Yeah, that's the um, part. So no that's one's the gonna, part. No one yeah. wants to try to spell your name no. Um So uh, you could do that. Um, or if you get on data uh, on Databank's website, um, leadership. I'm, I'm there on the leadership side of things. Uh, and then just simply... If you want, shoot, reach out to me. Shoot, reach out to you. Send me an email. My first initial last name at gmail.com, and I respond to email pretty easily. So, well, listen, don't be surprised when there is a listener that reaches out and wants a mentor or something. Yeah. Maybe there's another, maybe we just touched the CT base, wherever that school is at now. And these people are like, this is what I could do. I could be in this amazing industry, yep. and there's a home for me, and I could bring value. And Absolutely. that's the significance they need. The more that we do that, the greater that we impact them in a way in which we stop the cycle of suicide. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the genesis. That's the primary purpose yep. for everything I do. Yep. So absolutely have hope, you know, even if you're in a situation like my situation with my son, you know, going through that situation with him where, where we were told that he wasn't going to survive and that, that despair, um, just, you know, power through it because there is a brighter day. Uh, it may not be tomorrow, may not be two days from now, but there is a brighter day. And sometimes, you know, there's another book out there that I, I read, read a lot. There's a book out there called, um, necessary endings. 
um, by uh, Henry Cloud. And what it talks about is sometimes you got to prune off in order to grow bigger. So it uses the, ro- the rose bush. You got to clip them off and, and bring the energy that's inside that, that uh, individual or inside that rose bush back to the core so it can then shoot that energy out again. So think about that from, you know, if, if you're in that position where you're, you're feeling like you're, you're failing, uh, literally failing and in despair and there's not hope for tomorrow, think about potentially um, pruning some things off and having those necessary endings of, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's a job that you have to leave, or maybe it's, you're doing too much. Maybe you need to focus on one particular thing for right now in order to get back on the rails, but do that and, and have the hope because it can happen. Yeah. I think typically it's, it's not as much the environment as we think it's Mm -hmm. people just don't invest enough time into themselves. And that's what we're trying to do. Like, You'd be stunned how little time people put into their own health, mm-hmm. mental health, everything. So, right. hey, thanks again for coming. It was an honor to have you on this podcast. It's an honor to and be here. I hope to bring you back, you know, in another time where, who knows, maybe we'll be talking about this on the DCAC Live conference and you'll be on stage talking about this. So That'd be great. Hey, man, thanks for your time, Mark. Thank you. Thank you.